Hello, boils and ghouls. Welcome to the annual fan-requested horror film episode of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm uh, Manny Manuel. <laughs> Should have planned that out, what I was going to say a little bit better. Had to improv when the mic got hot. One of my... <laughs> always enjoyable things is that i never know how you're going to introduce yeah this the episode i always try to shock you whenever i can yeah, you you did well there sir you did well there um happy, I, ha- happy halloween happy halloween to you sir yeah um are you going to be dressing up i'm hoping to yeah 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 i just don't know what because i'm gonna throw my ex-wife under the bus she hasn't organized it yet <laughs> your ex-wife still plans your halloween costume for you we're generally we dress up as a theme. Oh, okay. The, yeah. the whole, well, the whole family. Yeah. Right? They're they're my they're my family. Yep. And earlier this year, when Maya decided she wanted to be a fox, mm-hmm. she said we could dress up as whatever we wanted, and I was like, okay, perfect. And then I heard we're supposed to be foxes. We're all supposed to be foxes together. And I'm like, okay, perfect. I sent a text to my ex-wife two days ago. I have not got a response. Hey, we foxes. I'm like, hey, what's going on Halloween? Do I need do I need to go get my fox costume? Because she usually great thing with it. We work very well together Mm -hmm. as a family. She's the mom, so of course she organizes everything. Mm -hmm. So she's told me she was going to organize everything. Haven't heard peep. Mm -hmm. Have no idea if I have a fox costume waiting for me at their house. But I will see them Saturday morning when I go pick up my daughter, so I will just ask her then. But now, granted, like it does obviously, like I sound like, hey, like fucking pick up your game a little bit here, <laughs> right? But at the same time, I also want to say she literally just had a baby. Yep, she did like uh, three like a like, month ago, right? Like not even yeah. three weeks ago. <laughs> She's picking out your. So she she might be a smidge busy, maybe with three kids I've, but i've heard that newborns aren't actually that much work i've heard that's a that's a myth that whole situation so while i definitely 100 percent admit that i came across as a little bitter bunny there yeah saying like hey what the fuck i'm also <laughs> fully aware that she is quite busy yeah and has her hands very full with an eight-year-old a two-year-old and a three-week-year-old and so, a 40-something-year-old <laughs> she doesn't have to deal with me anymore. She, she just like what she does. She ignores my texts. Yeah, that's exactly. how she has to deal with me. And she has a how old is Chad? Thirty. Chad's in his thirties. Yeah. Yeah. In his thirties, I think he just hit thirty. He must have. Yeah. I think yeah. he's. Yeah, I know Chad from a while. I think he's a year younger than my brother, who's turning thirty-one. So yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. So he's thirty, and they have a dog. So yeah, she's she's a she's a busy girl. Yeah, I uh, my, my girlfriend is picking out my Halloween costume too. Yeah. I uh, I can't give you too much shit. And she uh, uh, initially we were going to be Scott Pilgrim and Ramona Flowers. I just I have had no time to uh, to pick out anything. I I think I was telling you earlier, worked a six day week. Yes, and have shit every night. And yes, it sneaks up on me every year. Every year I tell myself this year, this year is the year I'm going to be prepared with my costume month in advance ordering the things on Amazon or going to Spirit Halloween and every year it's it's like the day of or the weekend of and I just I have nothing and I wind up in Value Village trying to find some shit. I have I've always had my backup costume. Yeah. Which is I have a official Star Trek the Next Generation uniform shirt. Oh, that's good. It's it was expensive as fuck. Yeah, I bet. I bet you it doesn't fit me now because I'm fat as fuck. Ooh, you're going to have to check that. God damn. 
Yeah. But it was always my backup when we had costume parties when I was younger, and it would always fit me. Because <laughs> all I needed was that shirt and just nice black pants, like ba- black slacks. You look like you're from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a sloth onesie that we used two years ago. Two years? Two years ago for Halloween. Greatest costume ever because it was warm as fuck. Mm. So I could I was outside in the cold, but I was warm because I was a sloth. So I'm taking that. That's my backup. If I don't get to be a fox, I'm going to be a sloth again because it was toasty warm. But your your costumes tend to revolve around the animal kingdom? No. No, no. Uh, last year, we were all Space Jam. Nice. So we got the Space Jam jerseys. Movie adjacent, or I mean, not even movie adjacent, but like part of a movie. So Yeah, it was movie. It was movie. Yeah. yeah. And then, and so then two years ago it was a sloth because she was obsessed with sloths. Mm-hmm. Three years ago, we were all Toy Story. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I was Buzz Lightyear. Julie was Jessie. Mm-hmm. Maya was um, uh, Mary. Uh, Bo, sorry, not Mary. Bo Peep. Yeah. Uh, obviously not Mary. She's Bo Peep. And Chad was uh, Duke Kaboom. No way. Yeah. This is immediately after uh, Toy Story 4. Yeah. I think, you know what? I think I did see the pictures of Chad as Duke Kaboom. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes. Happy oh. Halloween to everybody. Uh, we are recording this at night. Uh, not just so it's extra spooky, <laughs> although that is the case, uh, for, but for more reasons we will get to uh, in a moment. Yes. Um, in the meantime, uh, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to take yep, care yep. of. Uh, first and foremost, we want to give a big shout out to Abby, who yes. made her triumphant return to the podcast last week. Yeah. And uh, knocked it out of the park. We had a lot of fun. I, we, I did have a lot of fun last that week. That was only our second episode with the new format we've been testing out, yep. and uh, you and I are both, uh, we, are, we are our own best critics. We think we are the best. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, we did a great job. Abby joined in. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on what fuck movie we did last week. Hook. Hook. Of course we did Hook. Naturally. Um, this is one of Abby's favorite movies uh, from uh, from back in the day. And she was enthusiastic at the opportunity to jump on. And uh, yeah, she did not disappoint. She certainly did not sway either of us in the, you know, glowing review that she gave of the movie. But she certainly made a good case and, uh, you know, had fun doing it. So. Uh, big shout out to Abby, uh, and we hope she joins us again soon because uh, she's she's great. She's great on the mic. Yeah, I I think she had a lot of fun, and I think she's gonna probably, I think she's gonna come back fairly regularly. She seems to really enjoy it. Yeah, well, I mean, most of our f- first time guests they kind of take like a long time. I've noticed to yeah. kind of come back. They don't really want to abuse the open door policy too much it feels like yeah um but abby but they should yeah they should we tell them to yes often we're not just saying that it, it Come is on our show it is honestly we not- are sick of hearing each other talk we need a third voice yeah we are an old married couple inviting <laughs> young strapping people into our into our thruple <laughs> a weird analogy but you know what i'm trying to say i do and i like to to all the pfgs that are listening when we say it's an open door policy, it literally is an open door. Mm. I will, I'm gonna post once again like the movies we're doing. If any of them interest you in any <laughs> way, even if they're a movie you don't like, come on, yeah, jump on. Like go. we, I I love when we have guests. Totally. Don't get me wrong. I fucking love when you're here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But like it's always. I also love when I'm here. <laughs> <And> I... <laughs> My favorite episodes are the ones that I am on. <laughs> I wonder what an episode without me would be like. It wouldn't exist, and it doesn't exist, because you own all the equipment that we need to record. Yeah, I could lend it out. I, I... 
I'm I want to see if I can make that happen somehow. You know that no matter who you selected from the group, they would shit talk you lots on the mic. Oh, if I know. You, if you had like T Bone and Rachel or something doing an episode, T Bone would not do this without me. Yeah. Not because like he would just feel way too uncomfortable. Mm. But like a you Jordan and Rachel episode. Yeah. We could just gossip about you. That'd be interesting. <laughs> I'm intrigued. I'm gonna see if I can set that up. Okay. Mm. Um. But yeah, back to uh because we're narcissists, we got back on ourselves. Thank you, Abby. Cheers. Yeah. Um, before we get into the episode, uh, one section that is always <sighs> not the greatest to go into, but... Bittersweet? Yeah, is uh, our in memoriam. And someone passed away recently that played a major part uh, in my childhood, uh, and that's Jules Bass. Uh, he's one half of the Rankin-Bass uh, duo that made a lot of those Christmas specials I watched as a kid. Um, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, pardon me, all of those. Um, they were really instrumental to me as a kid. I loved seeing them every year. I eagerly anticipated them, and this is all pre-streaming and pre-that, so I actually had to keep my eyes open on the TV guide for when they would be playing so I could watch them. And I eagerly anticipated their return each year. And recently, I'm not mistaken, I think I can see it right there over your shoulder, I have the collection of them. I think they're in the M section next to the mall rats. Am I seeing that right? Yeah, go to the right. You're on the right shelf. Keep going. Keep all the way to the end. What's the one next to that right there? That's uh, Miracle on 34th. Oh, Miracle on 34th. Okay. I know somewhere that I have the collection of Frosty, Rudolph, and probably Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Somewhere mm -hmm. in that collection in there. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure. There's a big wall of Blu-rays behind me, so we could be here all night trying to find it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, the, it, he is very instrumental and very prominent in my childhood of the holiday spirit. So I just wanted to give him a shout-out. Uh, he passed away. Uh, this past week so uh, thank you mr bass yeah and uh what a wide array of people that he did influence because uh, i also grew up with these same movies and i think um plenty of children today are growing up with these movies um their his work has been passed along through probably three or four generations at this point and uh yeah my parents grew up with this stuff um so i mean he's had uh, a pretty wide influence on people even though i mean he the list of works that he that rankin and bass are best known for is you know probably the four or five that you listed here he's also part um they, they did a lot of animated movies they did an animated movie uh of the hobbit mm -hmm. that i watched a lot as a kid but i remember next to nothing but i just do i do remember like that was my that was my introduction introduction to um J.R. tolkien's story and uh, I remember really enjoying that Hobbit movie, uh, especially with Smog. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, he also did uh, Return of the King TV movie, apparently. Yeah, I only saw that once. I remember nothing. Hmm. Interesting. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Mr. Bass. Yeah, for your, yeah. For your mark that yeah. you've left on this industry. Uh, we tip our cap to you. Um, before we dive into our uh, main review, uh, we have you and I have both been watching a couple things. Sam, what have you been watching? Yeah, let me uh, get this up on IMDb here. So um, with it being October still, 
um, trying to get as many Halloween slash horror movies under the belt as possible. Uh, Emma had recommended, uh, she had watched this series, uh, I think a few years prior, or maybe last year, and recommended it as something for us to watch. Uh, this is a Netflix trilogy. These were released one after the other. Um, like one, one week, one was released. Part two was released the second week. Part three was released the third week. Mm-hmm. Um, last year in 2021 it's the fear street trilogy uh a circle of teenage friends accidentally encounter the ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued their town for over 300 years welcome to shady side this trilogy has a lot of moving parts mm-hmm. and given uh well, trilogies are tough let's say because the way that most trilogies are made now um is sort of piecemealed um oftentimes a movie is made into a trilogy and we'll talk about one of those trilogies later tonight um where it's just simply not planned to be a trilogy mm-hmm. movie studios get one pr- one uh, profitable that's the word i'm looking for one profitable movie and they think hey trilogy but the writer did not have that in mind and that tends to be a problem because um even if you have a successful sequel having m- emotional stakes and having character arcs re-resolve themselves two more times after the initial effort when you did not plan them to be that way can often be tough. So I know that we've had many conversations about Lord of the Rings on this podcast, for instance, but one of the many strengths, I think you'll agree with me, of that trilogy is that it was shot and written and like all at the same time. It was produced all at the same time. So it does feel like one cohesive story, not like, say, um, like even the Star Wars trilogy, the original one, which is hailed as one of the greatest trilogies of all time. The third effort is a little lacking. Um, we don't need to talk about the third effort in the newest Star Wars trilogy. It's a little bit lacking. Um, so um, this trilogy obviously came out all at the same time, was also all shot and filmed at the same time. And I think that's one of its many strengths. Uh, it does tell a cohesive and interesting story across three different parts. Um, so part one takes place in 1994 with these uh, three kids, or the, with these uh, high school age students who are trying to figure out what exactly is happening to their town. Uh, there's a number of murders that have happened for generations in this town, and another one has just occurred, and they're trying to solve what the hell is going on in this town that these things just keep happening, where seemingly normal people will just go insane and and commit murders. Um, part two is a f- continues that story, but within it, the bulk of it is a flashback to one of the previous murders, and which takes place, I think, in 19... I'm going to say 78... 1978 uh and then the part three continues the initial story in 1994 again um but again flashes back to the origin of this curse that has plagued their town back in the 1600s uh, of an accused witch so i really enjoyed the concept here um the writing and the dialogue for the most part is honestly not great the dial the dialogue really suffered at times for me it's it's very high school agey um I think one of the weaknesses of this trilogy is that I didn't really know who it was for. On the one hand, it comes off very um, kind of teen rom com Like, I'm thinking of, uh, like, Riverdale or one of those shows. Um, you know, it was, like, kind of high school drama-y. But on the other hand, there's just this brutal fucking violence. Like, very gory, very brutal. A lot of brutal language as well. So it, it kind of felt like there was a disconnect tonally between... Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't really know who the movie was for. But there's a lot of highlights in it. Uh, the movie, or the the trilogy, I should say, does well to include some twists and turns, 
often they are well realized sometimes they are not um but overall i think i spent probably five and a half hours six hours watching this trilogy i think it was time well spent i don't think i'll revisit this every year maybe down the line i'll go hey wonder what that was all about um you not being a horror movie fan yourself, I, I would highly recommend skipping this. <laughs> there was nothing about this that made me think I was going to watch it. Yeah. it. Uh, there are aspects that felt like they had been done before, and frankly, some that felt like fresh ground. Um, the dialogue felt like a weak point for me. The performances, for the most part, by a young cast is pretty good, actually, and I liked that a lot. Um, in my opinion, they get better as it goes along. After I watched the first one, I was kind of worried. After I watched the first one, I was like, God, I got two more of these to go. And they honestly get better as the series goes along. Um, overall, I gave each individual movie and the entirety of the trilogy three stars out of five because, you know, I was thoroughly entertained. It just, it just uh, you know, could have been better at parts. And uh, if anyone's looking for something good to watch this Halloween and you got six hours to kill, and this sounds like your cup of tea, if you like Riverdale and you like horror, check it out. <laughs> All right. That'd be my recommendation. Uh, okay, continuing with horror. Uh, one that I really wanted to watch. My turn for a recommendation. Short one, hour and a half long. Came out in 2015. The debut of Robert Eggers. Mm. The Witch. A family in 1630s New England is torn apart by the forces of witchcraft, black magic, and possession. So when I watched the Fear Street trilogy, a large part of that is a witch's curse, which take which uh, we get a look at in part three that uh, takes place in the 1600s. Um, after having seen that, even though it was pretty good, uh, all I could think was, "Wow, the witch did this better." <laughs> so I had to I had to throw out the witch as uh, one that we had to watch. Um, this is probably about my third watch of this one. I saw it in theaters with some people, and of the group that I went with, I think I was one of the only ones who actually liked it. Um, I can see if you've watched either of Robert Eggers following movies after this, um, you can understand why his style is a little bit off-putting for some people. Um, very art house, very artsy, um, very drab color palette. There's barely any color in this movie at all. It's borderline black and white. It's like sepia toned, um, very old fashioned New England style of speaking a lot of thighs and thous and binds and you know very like almost biblical way of speaking everyone sounds like they're in the king james bible when they're talking um so i can understand why people don't like this movie but in my opinion it does such a good job at maintaining its tone throughout the movie it is so creepy right from the very beginning it's it's eerie and suspenseful that's one of my favorite things about horror movies in general is the suspense that they're able to build. I don't particularly care for the jump scare aspect of horror movies generally, unless it's done somewhat creatively, which often it's not. Um, this family gets torn apart at the seams, often by themselves, and watching them just crumble under the circumstances that they're in is so fucking unsettling and creepy, uh, but very well written and uh, yeah. And just creepy the entire time. There is some imagery in this movie that will stick with me for a long time and not in a good way. If anyone's seen the witch, 
uh, they'll know it's either a crow or a raven. I'm not sure. It's some sort of blackbird. Um, the scene with the blackbird towards the end uh, is embedded into my mind forever and not in a good way. <laughs> it's uh, truly disturbing. But uh, this is also, as far as I know, the major film debut of, uh, I'm not sure if her name's Anya or Anya, Anya Taylor-Joy. I've heard Anya. Yeah, I, I usually go with Anya, uh, who some people may know from The Queen's Gambit as well. Uh, but this movie, The Witch, was, uh, as far as I know, her major film debut. And she's already excellent in it. Um, again, I can understand why people might not like this movie, uh, given its relatively slow uh, pacing it's drab color palette and it's sort of old timey subject matter and uh, style of dialogue. But man, is it ever a masterclass in creating suspense and maintaining that suspense and never releasing it, not releasing it with a cheap jump scare just to, just to get a rise out of people, but maintaining suspense throughout. Uh, I think it's very good. It's got an 83 meta score. It's an insanely well-crafted movie and I recommend people check it out if they haven't already. I give it a four. Yeah, uh, I know you haven't seen this one. Correct. Uh, I know that you were not the biggest fan of The Lighthouse. Did you give The Lighthouse a three? Three. Three? And you gave Northman a five, right? A five. Yeah. So now having uh, having mixed experiences with Eggers, let's say, do you see yourself revisiting this? Or do you see yourself visiting this for the first time Probably at all? not. Probably not? No, it's a horror. Yeah. yeah I, the honestly, Northman is not a horror. No. No, it is not. It is horrific at times. Yeah. There's a lot of... Have you seen The Northman? I have. Gave it a four. It's pretty good. Um, there's a lot of gore in The Northman, and I think you can imagine kind of the direction that that would be taken in a, a family that's being haunted by a witch. Yes. Uh, sort of the amount of gore that would be in that, especially towards the end. Yeah, I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty good movie. Um, those are really the only two things I want to talk about. I mean, technically, Fear Street is three things in and of itself, yep. but... I just discussed it as one unit uh, because it was all released as one unit. Um, so, yeah, those are the two things I wanted to talk about for now. Okay. We've got one more that we talked about, but we'll save that until you're done yours. Okay. And why, don't you, uh, why don't you tell me what you've been watching? All right. Uh, so I've been plugging away my 1991 rewatches. I'm going to start off with one that I was really excited to watch, uh, and that's Barton Fink by the Coen Brothers. Interesting. Uh a renowned New York playwright is enticed to California to write for the movies and discovers the hellish truth of Hollywood. I would say my appreciation of the Coen Brothers films, it seems pretty mixed for the most part. It appears that when they make a movie I love, I absolutely fucking love it. No Country for Old Men. Yeah, uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, uh, Racing Arizona, Fargo, Fargo, um, and when they make ones that I don't really enjoy, I don't like them at all. Uh, like um, the one with fucking Tom Hanks. I can't remember the name of it. I think of what that one is for some reason. It's really bad. Mm. Um, Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, you love that one. I love that movie. I think you gave it three. Yeah. yeah. This stars uh, John Turturro, John Goodman basically the two pretty much the only people that are kind of worth talking about the johns yeah uh this was a big disappointment it's too bad now this is obviously it's a little early early coen brothers 
Oh, another one I loved. Miller's Crossing. Gave it a five. Miller's Crossing is unbelievable. Did we say Fargo as well? We did. Okay. <sighs> this is that weird Coen Brothers humor. But it takes this turn near the end that goes so weird that I kept thinking, I'm like, this is a dream sequence. Like, he's going to wake up, and this is will all be a dream. And it's not. And it just didn't resonate with me hmm. at all. To the point, my enjoyment of the film was going well, basically until that point. And then, like a lot of Coen brothers, there is a tragedy that occurs. Mm. And that's when that that's when this movie turns. And I kept wondering, I'm like, okay, how are they going to basically get out of this? And it just goes places I never would have imagined. Um. Sounds like it's a difficult sort of movie to talk about, uh, non-spoilery. Yeah. I still found myself, I, I found myself enjoying the film because it's obviously expertly directed, uh, also shot by our boy, Deacons. Deacons, yeah. So there's some beautiful imagery, like, at times breathtaking, because as I was watching it, I wasn't paying attention in the credits, I was like, I immediately grabbed my phone, like, this has got to be Deacons. And I look up like, yeah, Deacons. Mm. <clears throat> John Goodman is really, really good in this movie. And I don't know the actors. I won't bother looking them up. But there's these two cops that show up near the near the end. They have this incredible rapport and great chemistry with John Turturro on screen that I enjoyed. The two cops were probably my favorite, and they're really only in two or three scenes. The other thing I want to point out is an actor in this movie called Michael Lerner garnered a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his role. And I am fucking baffled. Baffled. Is he good? Sure. Worthy of a nomination? Mm. Considering some of the movies I've watched in 1991 already? Fuck no. So spoiler alert for our year in review, he's getting kicked the fuck off of that list. Nice. Goodbye, Mr. Lerner. I gave Barton Fink a two. Oh, that's too bad. Um, I'm looking through the Coen Brothers filmography right now. Um, I don't think there's a Coen Brothers movie I dislike that I've seen. Um, one that we uh, neglected to mention that I really like that I can't remember if you've seen is A Serious Man. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, no. With um, Michael Stuhlbarg. Yes. A uh, guy that we have, uh, sort of a character actor, I guess you could call him, uh, that we really like as, as the lead. Yeah. Is he a character actor or is he just a supporting actor? Hmm. Kind of maybe might be stretching the definition of a character actor, but he's let's say not a common leading man uh, in a leading role, and he's fucking awesome in that movie, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as a few others. But yeah, um, so you haven't seen like have you seen Intolerable Cruelty? No, horrible. Here's the I'm gonna read them off because I haven't seen that many Coen Brothers movies. Okay, are you going in in order? I'm gonna go from earliest. Okay, from from earliest chronologically. Yeah, Uh, earliest one that I've seen is Fargo. Um, Oh, I thought you were going through their whole filmography. I am. Oh. That's the, early, that's the earliest one that I've seen. Oh, I thought you said you were going through their whole filmography. 
What am I missing? Well, Fargo's not their first film. The earliest one that I've seen. Earliest one that I've seen. That's why I said whole. <laughs> okay. You're not going through their whole filmography. <laughs> I mean, I'm You're... going through their whole filmography. I just skipped the ones that I hadn't seen because <laughs> I can see the whole thing. Anyway, semantics. Fargo is the earliest Coen Brothers movie that I've seen. Okay. Uh, then The Big Lebowski. Don't like it. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I've seen. Love it. Yep. Um, next one that I have seen is okay. No Country for Old Men. Love it. 2007. Burn After Reading. Love it. A serious Man. Haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't. I have not seen True Grit, believe it or not. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Inside Lewin Davis, we already mentioned, is one that I love. It was okay. Yeah. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I didn't care for. Didn't watch it. One, it's like a uh, an anthology movie. One or two of them I thought were pretty good, and then the rest. Were meh. Um, and I didn't see Tragedy of Macbeth. You thought it was a two, as far as I can recall. They've got a documentary coming out. Wait, um, they're, you're missing one. Am I? Oh, uh, oh, that you've seen. That I've I keep, seen. I keep thinking that you're going through their <laughs> filmography. I'm missing several. Yes. Yeah. So like anything before Fargo, I just skipped. They had five movies before Fargo. I didn't mention, and then yeah, yeah, five films before Fargo. So. Uh, Blood Simple, mm-hmm. Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, and what? Hudsucker Proxy. Okay, that's the only one of those four. Uh, those five I haven't seen. Yeah, nice. So anyway, yeah. Oh I, no, I'm missing Blood Simple as well. Uh, all of all of those I really like, or I shouldn't say that. Um, I at least like all of them. I'm actually more lukewarm on the Big Lebowski than lots of people tend to be. I don't like the Big Lebowski. Yeah. I it's, would. L- it's a three for me. It's good. I just don't I really remember what I gave it. Yeah, three at best. Yeah, I'd be. I when I was watching the Big Lebowski, I was like, I need to watch this. I want to watch it with Chards because mm-hmm. he fucking loves that movie. Because I want to be sitting next to him to see what parts he was laughing at. Because I was like, yeah. Um, I was going to say they have a documentary coming out actually on Jerry Lee Lewis. Interesting. Know. Yeah, did not know that. Anyway, yeah, uh-huh. that's uh, okay. So uh, Barton Fink, not a fan. No, Manny's not a fan. No, I gotta check I, it out. I I hope you do check it out. Yeah, I would love your thoughts on it. Hmm. Cool. Next up is a movie I'm going to spoil. Oh. One because I don't. I'm like 99 percent you're not going to watch it, but I really want to heap some praise on this movie. I see. And the only way I can heap the praise I want to is by spoiling it. Got it. So I'm going to spoil this movie. It is not – it has the same name as a movie you and I love, but it's not the same one, and okay. that is 1991's Rush. Not the uh, not the Ron Howard uh, 2008? Roughly, give or take. Yeah, 2008 uh, movie about – No. Oh, no, it's got to be newer. It's got to be, be, newer. Newer. Gotta yeah. be 2012, 2012, 13, 12. around there. Yeah. 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 There's a movie about uh, driving. Yeah, with, this is uh, an Chris, audible driving. With Chris Hemsworth and um, Daniel Bruhl, yeah. which is a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not this movie. Different one. This is very different. And it's also not the uh, progressive rock band from Toronto. <laughs> not that movie either. Not that one either. This movie is two small-town Texas cops go undercover to catch a major drug dealer and are sucked into the drug culture, compromising their assignment. This movie stars Jason Patrick, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Sam Elliott. <sighs> this movie had all the makings of what could possibly be an absolutely incredible film. You have two undercover agents that get sucked into the underworld of drugs who become addicts themselves while they're trying to take down or solve the mystery of this drug dealer who won't sell them drugs, won't even acknowledge their presence or their intent. So they are floating around this guy 
who they are assigned to try and find out if he is dealing drugs. There are moments in this film where Jason Patrick and Jennifer Jason Lee are on the precipice of award-worthy nominations. They don't cross the line, but they get very close. <sighs> okay. The movie's pretty well done. It is perfectly well acted. And like I said, it has the structure and story and roles that could make this an absolute classic film. It just doesn't quite get there. So, spoilers for Rush. In three, two, one, go fuck yourself. I wish I could remember the name of the drug dealer. He is Gaines, just known as Gaines. They, the two cops entrap a small-time dealer into their web to try and help get gains. They are literally told by the chief of police to plant evidence to get gains. They end up doing so. Gaines goes under arrest, is on parole. Now the two cops are fearing for their lives. They have been outed, all this. They're hiding out in this trailer. It is a beautiful shot. I'm going to – sorry, there's going to be a visual cue, and it's only for Sam because I just wanted to explain how great this part of the storytelling is. Jennifer Jason Lee is asleep on the couch. It is a close-up shot of her face. Mm-hmm. You can feel the tension in the scene. You know something's going to happen. And slipping into the frame is a shotgun. And it comes and brushes her face like this. And this is very important. It mm-hmm. brushes right down over her nose very gently yeah. over her face like this. Like, actually, it's more like this. It goes like this. Yeah. Manny's tracing a line from, like, in between his eyebrows over yeah. the side of his nose. Side of his nose and down the side of her face. Yeah. Very slowly. Yeah. Al- almost, almost sexually. Right. Okay. She wakes up, swats it away, shot goes off, another shot goes off, hits Jason Patrick in his leg, exploding his leg. Basically, so, like, got the femoral artery. His femoral artery, artery is, yeah. is fucked and so is He's he. He's fucked. So, whatever. <clears throat> he, spoilers, dies. Okay. I mean, yeah, he got hit in the femoral artery. Right? Yeah. Decent enough scene. Scroll ahead a little bit. Scroll ahead. <laughs> We are at the trial for Gaines. Remember I said they were told to plant evidence to try and get this guy. The chief of police have it's a hard-on for this Gaines guy. Right. On the stand, you're you're just like – she's on the stand, and you're like – you're wanting her to just come clean. Just say, just say you planted evidence. Like take the moral high ground. I can't remember the – oh, I forgot one part of the setup. Okay. Fuck. It's very, it, saying the setup now is going to reveal what happened, so I'm just going to let it go. She's looking at Gaines in the thing, and he very subtly goes like this to her. <laughs> Man, he's tracing the same line. He does it so slowly and staring at her, and she then realizes it was him. Mm-hmm. And I think he does it after 
she says she planted evidence and was told to plant evidence by the chief of police. Mm -hmm. So she's staring at him. She's like, you just killed. And obviously she had, they'd fallen in love. Right. Okay. The two things they set up earlier in the movie. Fuck. I wish I, I I, (laughs) I didn't think this through. Gaines is seen very early. It might be the first scene in the film. He drives a, he's driving a very nice car. He hears a noise in his back seat, turns around, pulls the car off the side of the road, Pulls out, he owns a bar. Hmm. Pulls out a drunk from his back seat, and the guy's like, I just wanted someplace dry. Kicks him out of his car. A little bit later on, Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick is the undercover cop. J- Jennifer Jason Lee is the, the new recruit he gets to come in and help him with his case. Okay, right? all right. Standard story. They start talking about, you know, like how dangerous it is to be undercover. And he goes, We have no backup, we are undercover. If something goes wrong, you cannot call the police for help. You have no help. The cops think you are a junkie. The only person that knows you are undercover are me and Sam Elliott's character. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, what am I supposed to do if you get shot? He's like, well, I hope that as a police officer, you will shoot the person that shot me. Mm -hmm. Cut to the end of the movie. Gaines is in his car. He hears something in the back seat, and he goes, I thought I told you fuckers never to get in my car. And he turns around, and from lower frame, the shotgun comes out. (laughs) Boom. Very cool. And that's how the movie ends. Just like cut to black as soon as the shot goes off? Yep. Nice. That's a cool ending. It's great. That's a cool ending. The whole lead up to that, that, the scene where the, the shotgun in the face, the trial, that ending is all in like the last 20 to 25 minutes. Mm. The movie's about two hours long. The rest of the movie is okay, but when you're watching it, you're just like, when you watch a lot of movies like we do and we critique them, you're watching it, you're going, this could be really fucking good. It just doesn't quite get there, but that ending is what made me give it a three. Oh, okay. Wow. By your description, I thought you were going to give it a four. Uh. I wanted to. I can't because the 80% of the film... It's just boring or like it's not or just boring not there. It's just almost run of the mill. Hmm. And the acting, like I said, it teeters on the edge of award worthy, but never crosses the line. Yeah. But that ending fucking delightful. Hmm. So rush three out of five ending five out of five. <laughs> Next up movie that can best be described as diehard. <laughs> Die hard in a prep school. And that is Toy Soldiers. Uh, a group of troublemaking boys decide to take a stand when terrorists seize control of their boarding school. Starring Sean Astin, Will Wheaton, Keith Coogan, and Louis Gossett Jr. Oh no, I'm nervous. <laughs> I loved this movie as a kid. I was super fucking excited. To rewatch this movie. And Sam, I can see you just saw the Metascore. I did. <laughs> Sam, I want you to drop the second number in the Metascore. And that's my rating. It's a four. It's still, it's great. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> this movie, there are three, no, nah, four aspects of this movie that make it some, that, that make it very enjoyable for me. One, 
It's die hard into prep school. <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's these. When this movie comes out, I'm 16. Actually, I'd be 15 because this movie came out before I turned. So you're 16. like right the perfect age to enjoy. This yes, movie. like I'm literally watching kids my age fight against terrorists. Like I'm like this is fucking unreal. So one, the whole premise is a lot of fun. Two. The performances. Sean Astin is a lot of fun. He's really good in this movie. Not like award-worthy, but he's completely believable. He's a rebellious teen, but not the rebellious teen where you're like, you roll your eyes. He's just, it's not that he's trying to get kicked out of school. He just doesn't like being there. Yeah. And he just wants, he just likes to make, he just wants to poke at that. Louis Gossett Jr. as the dean of the school is very... I hate using this word, but I I overuse it. He's very regal. He's very in charge. He's very authoritative. Uh, yes, in but in a good way. Mm-hmm. He sees he sees the potential in the Sean Astin character. One scene, he Sean Astin. It, it's minor. It's the beginning. He Sean Astin and his friends get caught doing something, being out after after lights out. They <laughs> they hack and hack. They cut into the the school's phone line system, that they, with a phone that they built themselves, and phone a sex line. <laughs> and you can see Louis Gossett Jr. He says it like on screen. He's like, "This is like this is impressive." <laughs> <laughs> but he obviously has to punish them, right? Yeah. But you can see that he is. He can see the potential in these boys. It's not the headmaster who. They're not rebelling against the headmaster. They're just rebelling because they're teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a really fun dynamic. And then the terrorist, the lead terrorist, is this actor who I'd forgotten. It's uh, not Andrew Divoff? Yes. I, the only reason I guessed that is because on the cast list, in his photo on IMDb, he's got an eye patch on. <laughs> yeah, that, but that's not what he. That's not the character he plays. In the oh, movie. okay. I was I was ready to no, to mock that. No, he doesn't. He, he's not that at all. He, he that in that picture that you're looking at because we're both on IMDb, right? Mm-hmm. He looks white, correct? Yes. Yeah, he he's Latin. Oh, okay. And so he plays. Um, the terrorists take these kids hostage because they want to get back. That what's the character's name uh Luis Kelly he wants to get his dad back who's like a cartel leader um the movie's ju- the movie's just fun it's teenage kids fighting back against terrorists it was an absolute blast there's some really great tension scenes there's n- there's nothing there's nothing in this movie that you you can't believe could happen it's I'm not, I'm not I'm not really spoiling the movie. No, I'm not really I'm not spoiling the movie. It's not like these kids get machine guns and fight back. Mm. That's not what they do. What they do, everything they do is basically realistic. It's just a really really fun movie that I loved as a kid and I won't lie like I was really nervous revisiting it. The weak part of the movie though is Will Wheaton. Really? Sadly, I love Will Wheaton. Yeah. Stand by me is awesome. But he, uh, his acting is not good in this movie. What happens to child actors, man? And I don't mean like the social aspect or the personal aspect of it. Like um, the Haley Joel Osments of the world. Just like why? Why is it so difficult to remain a good actor into adulthood? 
Will Wheaton's still a good actor. He's just woefully miscast. Yeah. He's woefully miscast mm -hmm. in this movie for his role. He could have played any of the other friends. He could have even played Sean Astin's role. Mm. But the role that he's played, he's miscast. Toy Soldiers are four out of five. Cool. I fucking love this, this movie. This is a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up is a movie I think you've seen. Uh, and that is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I have. Okay, I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, in this action-packed comedy, Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage, channeling his iconic characters as he's caught between a superfan, paid by Pedro Pascal, and a CIA agent, Tiffany Haddish, starring Nicolas Cage, Pedro Pascal, and Tiffany Haddish. The trailer for this movie, when I saw it in theaters, had me fucking pretty excited. This seemed like it would be something that's very fun. I'm a Nicolas Cage fan of his 90s work uh basically a lot of the stuff he did after the turn of the century not exactly the kind of stuff i like i fucking love pedro pascal and so i was looking forward to seeing what this movie could offer this movie was fucking fun this movie if you like Nick Cage, this is a must-watch. If you know most of Nick Cage's popular films, this is a must-watch. If you like movies that are a little meta and are enjoying their meta-ness and enjoying making fun of the very movie that they are, you need to watch this. This movie was some of the most fun I've had in a long time. Mm -hmm. The chemistry between Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal is undeniable. They are great on screen together. While it makes sense, the CIA subplot failed miserably for me. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how you can do the movie without it because it's what kind of it's adds. It's what it. the movie is about. Like it's his whole reason for being with uh, Pedro Pascal in the first place. Not, no, because he's there for the money. Right. The CIA thing doesn't come until he's already there. We're not spoiling anything. Yeah. It is part of. So I don't know how you could do the rest of the movie the way it plays out without it, but that was easily the weakest part. Mm-hmm. That being said, like their drug trip scene was fucking phenomenal. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot to like in this movie. I had a great time. This is one that I definitely see myself rewatching from time to time. I'm like, I need to smile. This will make me smile. Uh, unbearable weight of mass talent is a four to five for me. Yeah, I I'm really glad you like this movie. Um. I did watch this. I have it logged on, let's see, July 8th of mm -hmm. this year, so a few months ago now, so it's not totally fresh in my mind. I did go with a couple of my friends who are uh, Nick Cage fans, and they invited uh, they invited me, and uh, we, had a, we had a fucking blast oh. watching this movie. Um, I wrote a review on Letterboxd after watching it, basically saying exactly what you said, um, which is that uh, the chemistry between Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage is uh, well worth the cost of admission. Um, Nicolas Cage just fully leaning into himself. Yeah. Not being afraid to make fun of himself. 
uh, not being afraid to reference, you know, the Conairs and the rocks of the world. I am thankful for this podcast, by the way, because um, I watched those two movies in particular because yes. of this podcast. And there's a lot of references to those two movies yes. in, in this one. So I was thankful for those. Um, yeah, if you if you like Nicolas Cage or you're even remotely fascinated by him, because he is, uh, regardless of your opinion, a very singular actor. Yeah. There's nobody on earth doing what he does right now um for better or for worse uh it's it's certainly worth a watch for that reason and because um i i had never seen pedro pascal in a role like this nick cage is doing what he does best he's very much in his element uh but pedro pascal i didn't i genuinely didn't know if he had this in him uh i did watch the trailer for this in advance which i don't normally do um and even having watched it i was skeptical uh, that he'd be able to um go tit for tat <laughs> with Nick Cage to be able to keep pace and the two of them have a fucking blast yeah this is I, I did not expect this to be a buddy comedy movie as much as it is but that's really what it is at its it, core it's that, a buddy comedy movie yep um and yeah I'm, I'm glad you had a good time it was a four for me I too will revisit this it's it's super fun awesome all right the last movie we're going to talk about is a movie that you and I literally just saw yes so we mentioned it's a bit of a later night for us here tonight uh that is because Manny and I just came from the theater. We got to watch a movie together, which we don't do uh, too, too often. Yeah. So it was uh, obviously a treat. Manny, tell the people, uh, what did we just watch? We went and saw Clerks 3, uh, the latest entry in the Views universe from Kevin Smith. Uh, Dante, Elias, and Jay and Silent Bob are enlisted by Randall after a heart attack to make a movie about the convenience store that started it all. Spoiler alert for this movie, or spoiler alert for this review. I'm not going to be rating it. I need to sit on this, mm. but I want to talk about it. Speaking of movies that are meta, this movie is jaw-droppingly meta when it comes to Kevin Smith. This movie is basically Kevin Smith talking about his heart attack, how it made him look back on his life, and it is a re-examination of what made Kevin Smith into Kevin Smith. And we get to see the man really take stock of his life and the things that are important to him. When we sat down to watch the movie, I leaned over to Sam and said, I'm going to cry. Mm-hmm. You were right. I was, <laughs> I was right. The mo- the which I won't spoil, uh, the ending of the movie. Um, I, I don't want to say wrecked me, mm. but it hit me really fucking hard. Two scenes in particular prior to that from Brian O'Halloran. <clears throat> His acting is a little over the top. Um, and the two I'm talking about, I'm not really spoiling anything. Uh, the scene in the cemetery mm-hmm. was that almost made me cry. His his performance goes a little a little too over the top, but it still hit me pretty hard. And then the <laughs> not a spoiler because it happens in every version of Clerks. The one where him and Randall fight. Yeah. 
after the salsa shark. That's consistently one of the best scenes in these movies. That, yeah. That. <sighs> it's the f- arguably the finest acting scene that Brian O'Halloran has in the Clerks trilogy. I agree. This this performance on, in this scene affected me the same way that Randall's in the jail cell did in Clerks 2. Totally. I was actually stunned at what I was watching. Mm-hmm. And what part of the meta-ness of it is what Silent Bob does in that scene. Mm-hmm. When he turns the camera. Uh, I... I never saw a trailer for this film, but I'd heard, and I can't avoid it because I love Kevin Smith. I'd heard he talked about how personal his film was. He fucking says that for all of his movies, but for some reason I knew that this was going to be different, and I wasn't disappointed. I'm an unabashed Viewers Universe fan. I love it. Fuck. I, we went we went and saw it, and I was wearing a fucking Moobies hoodie. Mm-hmm. So I was I'm looking at a Moobies takeout bag right yeah, now, and Moobies cups, and Moobies cups. Like you, you have the you have the proof. Yes, I I and fucking Jan on Bob right there. Yeah, they're standing right above. And us. a signed Clerks action figure. <laughs> so I'm I'm a I'm a fanboy hmm. to him. Pretty. Sh- at least it felt to me that I was definitely the person laughing the loudest in the theater. You were. (laughs) Granted, there was like 12 people in the theater. Yeah, it was relatively empty and we were four of them. Yes. But it didn't, I didn't care. Uh, I loved, I really loved this movie and I had a really great time and it hit, it hit a lot of real emotional beats for me. As always, to the shock of nobody that knows me or anybody that listens to this, it is chock full of friendship shit. Mm-hmm. And so that hits home. Talks about aging. That hit home. Talks about wondering about your life like a midlife crisis. I'm <laughs> 46 years old. <laughs> now, I'm not having a midlife crisis, thank God. I'm not going through what Dante goes through in this movie. Yeah. But I'm not far off. <laughs> I'm not far off. Yeah. Uh, I really, really liked this movie. Probably even more than I was anticipating. Now, granted, my expectations of this film were pretty fucking low after Jane Silent Bob reboot. I'd heard this movie was good, <clears throat> but I was still scared because of what happened with Chainsaw and Bob reboot. I was not let down. I had a, you were there. I was laughing a lot. Yeah. Manny had a fucking great time. I had a really good time. Yeah. There's some really great jokes. Yeah. What was the one that we pointed out? Uh, man, I, I mean, even if we remember it, we probably shouldn't say it because I mean, spoilers and whatnot. We're talking about the sex sells joke. Oh yeah. Oh man. (laughs) That, that was the one we, you and I were both fucking howling at, at that joke. That was really good. Yeah. The other thing as well is the other reason this isn't spoiling anything. It says in the fucking thing. This is him retelling his story of when he made Clerks in the movie Clerks 3. Mm -hmm. Seeing him reshoot Clerks 
in this movie, when you're as big a fan as I know and you know the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens, seeing him replay it in the movie was uh, almost tear-inducing. I, 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 uh, I fucking loved this movie. Loved it. It's, I can tell you right now, it's an easy four. It's, it might be a five. Wow. Yeah. I, I, nice. I had, oh, yeah. Okay. I've had my share. Yeah, totally. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. I think that's as good a time as any. Um, I'm going to say a number of things about this movie, some positive, some negative. I do have, I think, more negatives than you. Uh, I will start with, uh, I think, what is a good positive, which um, this is the best View Askew movie since Dogma. That is where I'm going to start this. This is the best. View. I liked this better than Jane Santa Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, definitely better than Reboot. <laughs> yeah. Reboot's, um, Reboot's the worst. This like, was my favorite. Away. This was my favorite uh, View Askew movie since Dogma. Um, I really enjoyed this a lot. One of the best parts of this experience uh, was being, being beside you. Uh, <laughs> for real, uh, it was a delight to see how much you were enjoying yourself during this movie. I was also enjoying myself of my own volition enjoying the movie, uh, but really warmed my heart because I know how much these movies mean to you. I know how much these mo- these characters mean to you, how much these stories that are being recreated, like not just the stories on screen, but the behind-the-scenes stuff, yeah. how much all that means to you, and seeing all the very... Uh, the meta referential nature of it um, hearing your whispers like oh my god that did you know that really happened that's the, that was a delight to be beside <laughs> you for this and I'm, I'm happy I'm happy that I was there um, for me personally uh, I, I'll just remind people who may or may not know I'm sure everybody does uh, we did all of these movies we did episodes on each of the previous seven movies in the viewsk universe uh, I had them pulled up it was like episodes 170 through 177 mm-hmm we talked about these. Um, the last one that we watched was the last one that was released, and that was Jane Sound Bob uh, reboot. That was not good. Oh, that, was, that would hurt. That was my least favorite movie we reviewed last year. Literally ranked. It was my least favorite movie we reviewed last oh, year. Was it? Did it? It, went... it, it, it was the worst. Yeah. <sighs> and it was it was really bad. It was one star. I did not enjoy it. You gave it a one star. I gave it a one. Holy yeah. shit balls! And I, I stand by that rating. You should. <laughs> you should. Um, so I, needless to say, I was going with low expectations and they were surpassed. This movie was a delight. A lot of the, a lot of the jokes came off as so fresh. Now, one of the weaknesses that Jan Sound Bob reboot had in particular was the, the meta, the self-referential, um, sort of reflexive looking at, looking back at, haha, look at me, Kevin Smith, making fun of myself. Um, a lot of those meta jokes just kind of came off as cringy and sad and um, a little stale, honestly. And even worse than that is when he wasn't making fun of himself, when he was just like, hey, look at uh, look at us saying snoochie booches for the 30th time. Or like the him just kind of breaking out the same material. I'm still speaking of reboot here. Yes. Uh, him breaking out the same material um, just felt like, okay, we've, we've seen it before. Like every every little detail in reboot was just like dude like can we get an original joke like we've seen all of this before and i'll admit there were times in clerks 3 where it did feel like that for me not nearly to the same degree but there were times where the metal meta referential stuff i'm just like dude for the second movie in a row we are just making a kevin smith tribute movie like what is going on here that feeling is is much less in this one um but there were a couple moments where i, I definitely felt like that 100 um 
and I, yeah, I think I think you probably know the moments that I'm talking about, or at least can imagine them. Um, but for the most part, uh, the the life is reinvigorated into this movie. I can think of no better analogy for the life being reinjected into this movie than what we were saying to each other about Jason Mewes. Jason Mewes has kind of looked like a shell of himself for the last two VSQ movies. Yeah. And knowing all the personal struggles he goes through in his own personal life, I don't say that as a slight to the man. I know he's battling his own personal demons in his own way. Um, but he looks like... He looks happy. He looks healthy. He looks good. Yep. He looks good. And I, I kind of felt... <laughs> like that about this movie i'm like wow these movies have life again they have energy again yeah um the references for the most part to the previous movies are a lot of fun uh and the new material the new material is great yeah like i, I felt like i was coming out of a coma i'm like oh my god did kevin smith just write a new joke that's great that's awesome uh there were a couple moments where i just i felt like fucking clapping uh at the comedic jokes and that's not to mention the dramatic moments um oh my gosh i'll admit um, for the most part, I mean, as great as Jeff Anderson and uh, Brian O'Halloran are, like, let's let's be real with each other. They're not trained actors. They're not. This is their acting experience is almost exclusively Kevin Smith movies, pretty much, and almost exclusively Clerks. Um, I think in Jeff Anderson's case, it is exclusively Clerks. No, he's done a couple other ones. A couple other things, yeah. Yeah. Um, but these guys basically are Dante and Randall. That's that's who these actors are. Um, and there were times, yes, through this movie where I'm going. Yes, I love these characters. Yes, uh, yes, these characters love each other. Can't help but wonder if the performance would be better in other hands. Not that you could recast these roles. You, you absolutely could not. But no. I think you know what I'm saying. Just They're not the greatest actors. No. And it shows sometimes. Um, with the exception being that fucking, that fight scene, like that, that, uh, that argument scene uh, between Dante and Randall. Uh, that is, in my opinion, the best acting Brian O'Halloran has done ever in that scene. <laughs> I, I, I was... <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. I'm just like, it was a whole new person. It made me sad almost because I was like, wow, I really wish he had busted this out in uh, in the other movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, Jeff Anderson uh, really takes a lot more focus uh, in this movie as well um, and shows a lot of depth. Um, yeah. You can tell that this was a movie that was near and dear to Kevin Smith. You can tell. Um, <laughs> you, you said that it was a personal movie and that's kind of a cliche for him to say at this point, but yeah, there's a lot. If you know anything about Kevin Smith's life and you watch this movie, you'll be like, yeah, that's there. There's a lot in there that must have been hard to talk about, and uh, I have to imagine this movie was cathartic for him to kind of get it out on the screen. Yeah, and kind of dealing with his own uh, inner struggles and midlife crisis and fear of mortality and you know fear of death. Uh, so uh, this movie certainly was not perfect. It had it was a great return to form as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Still suffers from a lot of the same problems that some of his previous movies have suffered from, namely just kind of riffing on the same thing as the previous ones. Like, uh, <laughs> did you ever have a friend growing up who would tell you a joke and you would laugh at it and he would tell you it again and you'd laugh a little less and then he would tell you it a third time and you go, why are you, why are you still telling this joke? Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Smith is kind of that friend at this point, but uh, this movie uh, was refreshing. Yes, it was. It was definitely refreshing, and uh, I was relieved that it was this good. Me too. So, yeah. Clerks 3, um, I don't normally rate movies like right after they come out. I don't see this being anything other than a 4 oh, for me. Yeah. Like This this uh, approach it was probably closer to, to a 3 than it was to a 5, um, but it feels like a pretty solid 4. It was a good movie. I had a good time. 
I think I'm probably going to settle on a four, but I, I really need to sit on this for a bit. Mm-hmm. I might give it a five because of how much it really affected me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's late. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for joining the Samuel and Manuel <laughs> Movie Podcast. Uh, no, we got uh, we got one more to talk about, Manny. Yeah. What's, what's going on today? Well, as we revealed last week, and as you probably know because you've clicked on this podcast, listen to uh, the winner of our uh, annual fan requested horror film for Halloween is The Exorcist. Released December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy three, directed by William Friedkin. Written by William Peter Blatty, based on his own novel, starring Ellen Burstyn, Max Van Sydow, and Linda Blair. Has a meta score of 81, a letterbox score of 4.0. Had two Oscar wins. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. Uh, and it had 10 Oscar nominations, which I won't lie, I totally fucking forgot. I did not know that. I was, I was, I was shocked to learn. Now, did you learn that before or after you started watching it? Uh, I think before. Okay. Before. So the Oscar nominations it got, obviously, for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound, which it won. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Ellen Burstyn, uh, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress for Linda Blair, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, and Best Film Editing. Had a budget of $11 million, and it grossed $233 million in the U.S. in 1973 upon two releases. Adjusted for inflation... Do you know where that puts it? I don't. Okay. Ninth all time. Whoa. Ninth yeah, all people time. Went, people went out in droves to see this movie. This movie <laughs> was massive. Mm-hmm. Um, the plot, when a teenage girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. Sam. Your spoiler-free thoughts on The Exorcist. Yeah. So many asked me before we came on air if I had ever seen this before, and my answer was kind of, maybe. Um, there were there were aspects of this film that I didn't remember, in particular the first act as we're kind of setting up the possession and and the exorcism. Um, there were aspects of those or aspects of that part of the movie that I didn't remember, but all of the main famous scenes all the big scary scenes uh those ones i i did remember watching this is the kind of movie that would be on tv quite frequently when i was a kid and i would certainly flick into it um this movie obviously has a reputation (laughs) that uh that precedes it that uh is putting it mildly um still to this day i think a lot of people refer to this as one of the scariest movies ever made i think it's considered the scariest yeah and uh Insofar as I had seen it, it had been a while. It had been a minute for me. So I was kind of nervous going into it. Manny and I, not the biggest horror buffs in the world. You're starting to get in. I'm getting into, in there. I'm, I'm definitely getting I'm dipping my it. toes a little bit more. I don't like it, Sam. Yeah. When we, like start, when we started this podcast, I was dipping my toes. I think I'm up, up to my knees now. <laughs> no, Sam, We're no. wading in. No. Yeah. Uh, I'm developing I, a taste. I, I for feel horror. like you're betraying me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it had been a minute since I had seen this one. So I was nervous uh, with its reputation as being one of the scariest. Um, it could be because I was with a group of people. Um, I didn't really get that from it. Um, but what I did get, and perhaps it was because I was watching it through a more critical eye, what I did 
uh, come to understand is that this movie is completely deserving of all the praise that it gets as far as its technical prowess. Next year, Manny, this will be 50 years old. It'll be 50 years old, and it looks fantastic. This movie came out of a time machine, as far as I'm concerned. This is three years prior to Jaws. Three years? Four years? Three. Three years prior to Jaws. And I can. I was saying this to Emma after we finished watching this, because uh, she had never seen it before. I, uh, Manny just held up a number two. Two years prior to Jaws, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I said this to Emma after we finished watching it. Uh, we were trying to think of what the horror scene looked like before this. Um, in a little bit of research before I realized we didn't we neglected to talk about Rosemary's Baby mm-hmm. um, which was a big horror movie but we were thinking before this the, the horror scene looked like Hitchcock basically like think of Psycho yep and I mean like I said a few years prior to Jaws Jaws had yet to come out uh, like the horror scene at this point still had a decent amount of camp I mean Hitchcock is Hitchcock he's a brilliant filmmaker and a lot of his movies are brilliant there's still a reasonable amount of camp and not very much on-screen gore even the famous shower scene from psycho um we don't actually see anybody get stabbed we don't have a lot of uh, visceral language or anything like that um so by today's standards psycho not that scary anymore or really any hitchcock not that scary anymore in my opinion i can't imagine having that be the vanguard of the genre and then having this come out i know right this this would come off as genuinely demonic. I can completely understand the reputation that this garnered for itself, especially at the time. Because in cultural context, this came from hell. <laughs> yes. This came from hell, especially considering all the special effects and all the technical prowess that it achieved. Um, so my praise for this movie, I'd say primarily number one comes from historical context. Agreed. Knowing what film looked like and what horror looked like at the time, and then seeing this must have been baffling um as far as on a level of personal enjoyment again my enjoyment mostly came from um just awe at what they were able to achieve with the technology of the time this movie does not look 50 years old it maybe looks like 20 25 years old as far as i'm concerned it still looks fucking great um i'll maybe leave it there for now we are going to have a lot of discussion on critical points of the movie but um yeah there were very few surprises you know think of the most shocking scenes in this movie i had seen all of them already i kind of knew what what was coming my way Uh, a couple of them i forgot just how um crazy they were (laughs) and just how over the top they were but i kind of knew it was coming and i could kind of brace myself so um yeah that's where i'm gonna leave it for the exorcist for now i had a good time um mostly just because uh like having my jaw dropped at just how great these filmmakers are, just how great um, the special effects, the acting. Oh, my God, the acting. Young Linda Blair getting an Oscar nomination for herself. Uh, kudos to her. Well-deserved. Um, yeah, the, the performance is top to bottom. The, uh, the technical prowess, all just, all just great. Phenomenal. I was dreading watching this again. Mm-hmm. I'd only seen it once before. And it scared the shit out of me. So, I wasn't looking forward to it. But, as I sat down to watch it and started taking notes, I realized, I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to be watching this more with a critical eye than just sitting down and watching it. So, maybe I'll be able to get through this a lot better. And I did. I think one of the problems, eh, problems, wrong word. One of the things about horror 
is that when you've already seen the horror film, it still might be able to creep you out, but the chances of it actually being able to scare you are reduced dramatically. It's not like a comedy, which you can watch over and over again mm-hmm. and laugh and stuff like that. It's different with horror. Doesn't mean you can't rewatch horror films. You can still get, but it'll never be the same as the first time. Never. And so, th- thankfully, because I don't, en- I don't enjoy the feeling of being scared. I hate it. I fucking hate it. Uh, I was able to sit through this, and because of that, I was able to marvel at how incredibly well made this movie was. I had totally forgot I I honestly had forgotten that this had been nominated for Best Picture. First horror movie ever. Yep. I had forgotten. I knew the only thing I could remember about this movie was I knew that Linda Blair got nominated and that uh the makeup was it the makeup? Yeah makeup. No, even the makeup didn't get fucking nominated. Makeup did not get nominated? That's no. criminal. Criminal. Uh, okay, so yeah, th- that was all I could remember. Uh, researching for the film, I had no idea that Adjusted for Inflation is the ninth highest grossing film of all time. <laughs> that is, I forgot to tell you. So it grossed $233 million. Uh, that's domestic. Hmm. That, if you just for inflation, that's a billion dollars. Domestic. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's wild. So, that's That's more than Star Wars. Like, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah. The fact that it didn't take off worldwide is really the only thing keeping it from or didn't take off as much worldwide, I guess I should say. So. As I was watching this, seeing the performances. Jaw dropping, I, I like I said, I remember watching the first time and being scared. Watching this this time, I really got to appreciate what Linda Blair did. I got to really appreciate Ellen Burstyn. I got to appreciate a lot more of this film in the technical aspects. So I'm trying not to burp on air. <laughs> We've got a lot of uh, sugary drinks in us tonight yeah. to keep us awake. Uh, this movie was <laughs> stunningly good. Mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't believe how well-crafted this movie was. And I'm. it kind of hurts me that I had not re- – that it came as a shock. Mm-hmm. This movie is really fucking good. Um, I, I just like to throw something out there. I've uh, You and I have both talked about on this podcast about how one of the downsides of doing a show like this is that it often uh, doesn't allow the screen to dissolve, so to speak. It doesn't allow you to be as immersed uh, in, the, in the material. You kind of see the – the mechanism more than you see the art, if, yeah. if that makes any any sense. Uh, sometimes, um, only when I'm reviewing. Yeah, yeah. I I honestly find that I kind of view movies differently in general, but it's oh. certainly most pronounced when when reviewing a movie. Um, this is one instance where I actually felt like my enjoyment of the film benefited from kind of a deeper analysis mm-hmm. of it, because um, this is not the kind of movie I would be inclined to watch generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like as a, as a piece of art and as a, as a, as an undertaking, as a thing that people crafted, uh, it, it was super enjoyable to experience. Every once in a while we talk about 
we wish we could have watched a movie for the first time when it came out, mm-hmm. this is one of them. This would be one of them. I would have sure. loved to have been in a movie theater in 1973 when this came out. To that audience reaction? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's get into the discussion of the let's, film. Let's do it. We're going to spoil The Exorcist in three, two, one. Go fuck yourself. Sam, what's the first thing that you would like to discuss? Uh, well, I mean, on the note of uh, the technological prowess that's on display we'll get to all the scary scenes for sure um the medical procedure that uh linda blair undergoes with the thing being inserted into her neck and the blood spurting out that was chilling and like just really ice cold um camera did not blink away or did not look away from um, a very difficult, real thing in this movie that's very fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, that might not quite be the the right word, but this movie that uh, has quite a lot of suspension of disbelief, seeing something so cold and surgical, uh, arguably felt as chilling as the elements that had a demon in them. Does that make sense? 100%. Well, again, it comes down to all the incredible things that are in this movie. Part of it, with that scene is Linda Blair's performance. Mm-hmm. You're watching her take this fucking needle to the neck, which if you watch it, it looks incredibly realistic. They didn't really stick her with a needle, but this does get cited apparently by doctors and in, uh, in medical schools as like a realistic depiction of this particular. Yes. Procedure. They, they all, all the doctors in that scene mm-hmm. are real doctors. They're yeah. not actors. Mm-hmm. And so, that what they show you is exactly what they would do in this procedure. It's one of the things uh, William Friedkin started off as a documentary filmmaker, and it's one of the aspects of this film. It's almost shot like a documentary. Mm-hmm. Like it's everything's realistic. Now it's nineteen seventy three, so it has something you know that I love: practical effects. Let's go right. So, which we'll get into, I'm sure, when we discuss other scenes. But it's what he's doing constantly is keeping everything in frame. And so this medical procedure that we're watching is done in frame. Now, like I said, you don't see the needle go into her neck because it's on the other side of the screen. You see one side, it comes on the opposite side. But it looks so fucking good. And it's her performance her wincing, her tensing, her screaming. It, it's a fucking a tip of the cap to this young lady. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's a great scene. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's my pick for the first one that we want to talk about. Uh, do, do you got one? Uh, well, I'm going to start off with, um, let's go with uh, her first possession. Yeah. The violent spasms. Uh, this is, uh, everything about this, I, I can't remember if it's this one, um, no, it's not this one, this isn't the one with the doctors, uh, the screaming, Ellen Burson's performance as being a devastated mom who doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Oh, no, this is the one with the doctors that I want to talk about. Um, it, this is the one where she's flopping up and down. Yeah. Uh, Linda Blair, the actress, uh, was injured during this scene. Like permanently injured. Yes. Um, she is screaming, 
make it stop, make it stop, it hurts. Um, those are the lines that she was supposed to be saying, but she's saying them for real. For real. Because I guess this little piece of metal got bent, and it was stabbing her. Ow. And she was in agony. So w- watching her body contort that way and flip that way, I just I don't understand how she could do that. Mm-hmm. I, I, you could have – it's slamming and moving so fast. I – you could have used a dummy and it would have looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Like it was just <sighs> – Like the whole point of that moment is that this spirit, this thing is – ragdolling her it's yeah. just completely taking over her person so yeah like that sort of effect could easily be achieved by a dummy um especially i mean just the kind of camera work that's being used in it her face is kind of obscured anyway yeah with her hair yeah exactly so i mean i i don't think in this particular instance uh that anything would be lost um by you know uh taking the easy way yeah uh, and i only call it the easy way because the hard way is literally just harming and hurting a child yes uh, that's one of the things about this movie that that really is difficult uh to watch uh and not not even from a horror movie perspective just as a just a human being knowing that a child is being hurt for real on screen is at times difficult to watch yeah. in this movie um knowing everything that she went through during the production of this movie and after the production of this movie is is tough uh it's just it was so it was so hard to watch both from seeing the character endure this and the performer have to endure this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, a good scene that uh, well freaked me out. Uh, a great practical effect here as well of uh, the throat swelling. Yes, uh, like a bullfrog. Like I I don't know how they did that, but it was it was super cool. Yeah, it still looks very convincing fifty years later. Yep. Um. Uh, by the way, this isn't my pick for the next scene, but there's a great scene uh, directly following that one where the doctors are still trying to say that this is all medical, <laughs> and Ellen Burson just fucking freaks out on them. That's yes. A, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but let's see. What am I going to go with? Um, shit, I mean, uh, the next one I have written down is the, cr- the cross scene. The, uh, when she's possessed, when she's masturbating with the crucifix. Yeah, that uh, that is how Wiki- that's how it's written on Wikipedia. That's the description of the scene: her masturbating with a crucifix. What's happening uh, in non-Wikipedia terms is she is stabbing herself repeatedly and violently in the vagina with a crucifix and drawing blood, and then forces her mother to put her face in it. She forces her mother to perform cunnilingus on her. Yeah, that is a scene that really happened in a movie 50 years ago. Uh, now, I think we've talked about the Haze Code before mm-hmm. on the podcast. This this movie came out post-Haze Code, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is just the set of rules and guidelines that governed film throughout, let's say, the 30s to 60s-ish yep. area. Um, again, historical context is a big part of why this film is so amazing and baffling all at once is because this movie is only a little bit removed. Like let's call it a decade and a half removed from 
that era where like the mere mention of sex was taboo yep uh where you had to skirt the censors really cleverly and now we have a scene where a young girl uh does the thing that i just described that i don't want to say again and it's allowed to be put out in theaters now that's not to say that the release of this movie was without controversy far from it the controversy surrounding this movie is one of the main reasons why it's the ninth most profitable movie or ninth uh biggest grossing movie of all time when adjusted for inflation yep so I don't mean to suggest that this wasn't without controversy. I'm just saying how things can change in a couple of decades in an art form is wild. Yeah. Because for better or worse, this was cutting edge. This is 12 years after Some Like It Hot, which had to dance around mentioning sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, or, uh, or Psycho uh, getting absolutely shat on i'm gonna mention psycho again because it's the best analog we have here i think um getting shat on by the censors for suggesting nudity for um for not showing a woman's naked body but having like a shot of her waist when she's not wearing clothes or something for a split second yeah while she's in the shower just the mere thought of a woman naked was enough to make the censors shudder 13 years prior yeah 1960 i think was psycho and now we have this scene (laughs) We have a 12-year-old <laughs> masturbating with a crucifix. Yeah. Yeah. So this scene is still as shocking now as I have to imagine it was back then. I mean, I can't say that for a fact because I wasn't there back then. But this scene, even knowing it's coming, is still so shocking and so uncomfortable. And that's definitely the desired effect for what for what they're going for. But it, it, it accomplishes it. It's... It's probably it's the most shocking thing in the movie. It's yeah. It's the most shocking thing in the movie. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is when Father Karras goes to see Regan for the first time. Mm-hmm. I keep calling her Regan. They call her Reagan. I keep calling her Regan. I I in my head that name is Regan, but yeah. I will I will call her. Regan. They call her Reagan in the movie, mm-hmm. and I'm like President Reagan, President Reagan, President yeah. Reagan. Uh, the sound design, which won an Oscar, mm-hmm. unbelievable. Um. Seeing her restrained, I think that's the first time we see her restrained. It's just like, oh my god. Um, on the note of the sound design, the voiceover is so good. Yeah, it, it's so seamless and so modern. It's mm-hmm. great. Uh, th- <laughs> this has the uh, very infamous line, um, "Your mother sucks cocks in hell." Yeah. Uh. This is also the arguably the most famous scene. This is the puke. Yeah. Honestly, when I think of the exorcist, I think of the rotating head. Fair. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yep. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of the puke. Yeah. Uh, I used to have a, I used to be a sympathetic puker. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, that ended in uh, 1993. Why? Uh, I won't tell the whole story. Okay. Maybe I will. I worked at a summer camp for kids. We had a healthy carrier bring a virus into the camp. 50 out of the 57 people got sick. And by mean sick, I mean violently ill. I was one of the seven. I did not get sick. But I watched 50 people for two days throw up every hour on the hour. Have you seen the movie Stand By Me? Yes. You remember when Lardass? Oh, I I remember. Okay. Nothing. Lardass. 
Com- nothing compared to what I've endured. Mm. That cured me <laughs> of sympathetic puking. Now I see somebody puke. I'm like, that all you got? That's it? Yeah. There's a lot more to that story, but I'll I'll cut it there. That's I'll t- great. I'll tell you. That's that to tell me later. I'll, I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm like those kids in Stand by Me. I'm like, what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What happened next? They threw up everywhere. <laughs> There's a lot. So yeah. So I used to be a sympathetic puker. So this scene always, besides the fact about it, just the the vomit itself. Um. Jason Miller as Father Karras is is really good. 100% earns his nomination. Oscar nom- oh, yeah, Oscar nominated. Uh, fantastic. Absolutely great. I love that he is, in this scene, he's very skeptical. You know, Heading into the scene, he has the scene with um, with, with Chris, played by Ellen Burson. Um, you know, he's like, I've been, you know, I've been a Jesuit priest for 20 years. I've never met somebody that has even said they've done an exorcism. So he's skeptical, and rightfully so. And when he goes in there, uh, he's testing. You know, if you know my mother, then you know her maiden name. None. No. Uh, throws what he says is holy water. The demon reacts violently to it. It's just tap water. So he's skeptical. Um. So yeah, this whole this whole scene is really, really well done. I uh, I love uh, it's I I loved it. I ha- I had to I had to mark it on this uh, on this list. No, that's a great one, and yeah, his performance uh, really is great. Um, by the way, uh, in researching for this, I came across the fact that this is Jason Patrick's dad. Is that correct? Yeah, I have yeah, that, the notes. That's wild. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. I and when you mentioned him earlier, I was like, aha, I have a note on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have anything further on that scene, but can I give you a different Father Damien scene? Um, it's from earlier. Uh, when uh, Father Damien is at the bar uh, with, I think, one of the older priests, mm-hmm. and he just declares that he's lost his faith. Yeah. And he's being praised. He's like, what are you talking about? You're one of our best. You're a psychologist. People come to you when they're in crisis. You're, you're great at what you do. Um, and he is just, he, he, no longer, he no longer loves what he does. He's having a crisis of faith. He doesn't even know if he believes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a very well-acted scene. It actually reminds me a lot of a scene that I, I love from It's a Wonderful Life uh, when Jimmy Stewart is having a crisis of faith in a bar. <laughs> Funny that. I was going to say, I'm like, that's at the bar. <laughs> um, I guess that's where these things happen for people. So that makes perfect sense. Um, I don't just love it because of the acting. I think uh, from a writing perspective, it's really important to have this scene because Father Damien's Big time. entire character arc is... Um, while i mean we're in spoiler territory so i can say that at the end of this movie he does sacrifice himself to to save a child um from from a terrible terrible fate uh this scene in the bar is really important to set up his entire character arc because that moment where he decides to uh, take on the demon and sacrifice himself is where his faith is restored his his entire arc is him regaining his faith and him realizing okay this this demon or devil or whoever it is really does exist within this child. And it really is my role as a servant of God to take that burden away from this child and sacrifice myself for it. Yep. And his realization of that is like the entire point of his character. Oh, I and, agree. And we don't get that if we don't have him in the bar declaring his crisis right at the beginning. Yep. Um, my last pick mm-hmm. it's the whole ending the exorcism and basically the scene 
uh, when Karis returns to the room, I'm combining that into one big scene. Yep. I know it's like the last basically nine, like probably 12 to 20 minutes of the film. I don't care. It's one scene for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get Father Marin showing up, uh, telling uh, Father Karis what to expect. Demon's going to lie. Demon's going to try and do that stuff. Um, I always loved that this is pre-CGI. The room is cold. Yeah. You can see their breath. That's for reals. <laughs> Apparently, Linda Blair developed a lifelong aversion to cold. Yeah. Uh, because of how refrigerated this room had to be. And there was actual refrigeration in yeah. this room. Every Everybody got sick. Mm-hmm. Everybody got the flu because of what they were doing in here. Um, I, made, I did make a mistake. Uh, this is the scene where he says, your mother sucks cocks in hell. Uh, <laughs> her laughing, this is for you, the famous scene, her head twists all the way around. Uh, the very famous line, the power of Christ compels you. Uh, Reagan floating, her swearing, the intensity of the scene. This is, as I was watching this, I was just like, I would have given anything to see this film in theaters in 1973 because I can only imagine the electricity in the crowd watching this scene. Yeah. Um, maybe I will split this up. I'm, I'm going to keep the exorcism here and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll split father cares returning. To this okay. Exorcism. Uh, I, I, in that case, I'll go to a different one than that because I only have two more. That's one of them. Okay. And then the cares returning. Yes. Okay. Uh, or really, just the entire end. But yeah. Okay. Um, the other one uh, is uh, Reagan. I had to stop myself and say her name right. Reagan's mom uh, pleading with Father Karras. Not necessarily the one on the bench, although that's good too. Um, the one uh, I believe it's in their house still, uh, where she says something like. Um, you show me Reagan's double, same face, same voice, everything, and I'd know that it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut, and I'm telling you that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. This whole like, there's more to that monologue, but this whole acting performance from Ellen Burstyn gets her her nomination, as far as I'm concerned. Yep. I mean, she's great throughout, um, but this monologue here has me like feeling the devastation that this woman is feeling. Like she does not recognize her own daughter and she shouldn't because it's not her yep um the shock that we feel um she uh, ellen burston is very uh, adept at portraying as well like i can only imagine as a mother seeing your child go through that um but she portrays that devastation really well in the scene and that desperation yeah to, uh, to just find any solution. And again, context of the movie is very important. We've seen her plead with doctors and with uh, a hypnotherapist at one point. Just really fucking anybody who would listen. Um, so we know at this point that she's at the end of her rope and she needs Father Karras to understand that. What I love about this, and it's actually, I probably honestly wouldn't have thought about it if you hadn't mentioned it last week when you're talking about the invisible man. Chris does everything right. Yeah. I, I felt I felt the exact same way. It's I, and it's one of the reasons I think this movie is so well is resonates so well with well with me, is that the same way the Invisible Man is your protagonist is doing everything correctly and is still getting fucked over. Mm-hmm. You know she tries to go through science, doesn't work. Tries to go through psychotherapy, doesn't work. Then someone just 
casually kind of mentions, have you thought about an exorcism? Finds a priest. She's not even a religious person. Nope. She does everything that you should do. She doesn't make any stupid decisions, and it's one of the reasons that this movie is so well made. Yeah. I like those sorts of horror movies. I mean, certainly you need your characters to be fallible. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, the word Mary Sue gets thrown around for a character who's completely without flaws. Um, but in horror in particular, I just feel like it's so important for us to be able to empathize with the character. And if your character dies doing something overtly stupid, it the movie suffers. Yeah. Very much so. So. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is the ending. Uh, Father Karras returns to the room. Marin is dead. Um, I love <laughs> the twisted humor in me loved when Karis starts to kick the shit out of the demon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching Father Karis kick the shit out of the demon, but what I'm seeing on screen is Father kicking the shit out of a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's pretty shocking. But. It's pretty shocking. Uh, and then it's it's here. It's The scene, the reason I, I originally did want to split this up but then I did remember uh, that there is a scene between the end of the exorcism and Karis returning, and it's where Father Karis is talking with Chris, and you know she says, "You know, is she gonna die?" Mm. And he's like, "No." And it's in this moment here he realizes he. I believe in in the scene prior, he didn't think that he was gonna have to sacrifice himself. But it's up here in the room in this moment. He's like, I'm, I will sacrifice myself for this little girl. Yeah, he makes the realization. And dives out the window, saves Reagan. That stunt fall down those stairs oh, was nasty. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm watching it. And I was like, ooh. It's a long staircase. Yeah, those are – it reminds me of this – a movie you haven't seen. There's one scene in uh, a movie I fucking love called Cocktail, where a stunt person has to take a header down a very long flight of stairs. I'm gonna have to watch that eventually, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm. I think I might see if I can convince Ray to come on that one with me. Does he love Cocktail? I don't know. Hmm. I I feel no, he won't, because he hates Tom Cruise. Oh, like okay. hates him with a burning passion. Hmm. So maybe not. Anyways. Uh, that stunt work was uh, impressive. Uh, I, it's when I see stunts like that, I'm like, I could never be a stunt person. No. But yeah, uh, Father Karras returning to the room, uh, one of my favorite scenes. Cool. Uh, that's everything I have. Is there anything right. further for your no, scenes? No, I'm good. Right. Uh, favorite scene then, Sam? Oh, that's got to be tough. Um, I, I think... Um, yeah, this is a really tough one. You go first. <laughs> I'm I'm taking the exorcism. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm just taking the exorcism, the final one. Okay. Or, or the final scene of it. All right, performance review. Uh, start us off. Who are you going, who are you going to start with? Uh, let's go with Ellen Burstyn first. Nice. Um, I've already praised her a reasonable amount, but uh, she has several good monologues in this movie where she's freaking out at supposed experts who are unable to tell her what's going on with her daughter, her daughter and her frustration evolving into despair is something that she does really, really well in this movie. And I think mm-hmm. the nomination is super well-deserved. I'm we're, I would love to one day, we're never going to have time for it. I'd love to one day 
delve into the other acting performances that beat this movie because the three acting performances that were nominated were all exceptional as far as I'm concerned. And we'll, I'm sure we'll delve into the others in a moment. Uh, so the five Best Actress nominees of that year, I've never even heard of the four other films. Hmm. And, and one of them, uh, the winner, Glenda Jackson, an actress I don't know, winner. won for A Touch of Class, which was nominated for Best Picture. It's a movie I've never heard of. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, uh, by the way, I'll also mention that Ellen Burstyn, uh, I forgot she was in this movie because I know her from Requiem for a Dream, <laughs> which I often cite as one of the best movies that I will never watch a second time. She was also uh, in the movie Pieces of a Woman. So she was. Yeah. Yep. And I re- and she was really good in that. Yeah. If memory serves... Her character was a huge piece of shit in that movie. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was. And she was really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she really was. Uh, I just looked it up. Ellen Burstyn, uh, 89 years old currently. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's getting up there, but still kicking. I'm going to talk about Jason Miller. Cool. Let's go. Uh, I love his Crisis of Faith. His arc is really good. I love the guilt he's feeling over what happened with his mom. I love his skepticism about it. Uh, because I feel like that's much more realistic. And during the exorcism, he's just stunned. Uh, I like the response, his realistic response. He's shocked. He's flabbergasted at what is actually transpiring. You, when you're having, when you're having a crisis of faith, and it's funny that his crisis of faith is uh, fixed by the appearance of evil, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes him realize that if there is this evil, then there must be that good. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really liked uh, Jason Miller's performance, and this was his first role ever. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know this actor from anything else, I don't think. Not off the top of my head, anyway. He, no, neither do I. Yeah. No, uh, I agree. His performance was spectacular. The writing of the character is certainly doing some legwork because yeah. uh, it's a really well-written character. Um, but that doesn't diminish uh, what he did in this role as well. Um, yeah, the um, despair that he feels at the beginning of the movie uh, I-, I think is really effective for setting up the character arc that we will get as we go along uh, where he re-realizes his faith. And yeah, it was super good. Who's next? Who do I got next? Uh, let me see. Sorry, I just scrolled away. Um, we are going to go with... Hold on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Linda Blair. Oh, that's shocker. Wh- that's what we're going to go with. All right. Uh, I guess I could have just said that I forgot her name, which I did. Uh, <laughs> um, what a spectacular child performance. Um, the actress, I just want to confirm, was 12 at the time of Correct. filming? Correct. The actress was 12 years old. Uh, this is one of the greatest child performances in the history of film. This is really spectacular. Granted, there is some voiceover work being done um, on uh, a lot of the uh, lines that are being delivered delivered by the demon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, the, the physical acting that she did, the early on acting, uh, the screaming, the yells, uh, the facial acting that she has to do uh, while the voiceover is going on acting through the makeup that she has and through the special effects. 
um, is certainly not easy. She gives a great physical performance. You don't often see that from child performances. Um, a great physical acting job and a yep. great facial acting job um, uh, is certainly worth uh, worth shouting out. And uh, I know that Linda Blair didn't have a huge career as an actress after this. Um, I can't imagine she really wanted to do after the notoriously dreadful experience she had on set. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she uh, carved out a spot for herself in the record books with this one. This is one of the great child performances of all time. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, she's absolutely adorable at the beginning, uh, and it really made me sad knowing what was going to come. Uh, I, I kind of, I kind of, I'm with you. I kind of forgot that the movie it does take a little while to get going, mm-hmm. but again, they're setting up the characters, they're setting everything up. Very well. I, I think they're, they're they do a great job of setting up the tragedy. And she was cast in this role because she wasn't an actress, and she just kind of looked like an ordinary little girl. Yeah, she's uh, I I don't say this to be mean, but she just looks like a regular generic white girl. Yeah, just <laughs> kind of ordinary. Yeah. Um, and that makes her descent into the vile things that happened to her, and that she winds up saying and doing. Um, it makes it that much more tragic. Yeah. Uh, the way she contorts her body, she does really well playing the demon, acting through all that makeup on her face. Yeah, it's a it's a spectacular performance, well worthy of her nomination. Um, she uh, ends up losing to a girl even younger. No way. Yeah. That. Uh, Tatum O'Neill. Youngest of all time? Ten years old. Wow. Uh, and second place was uh, Anna Paquin. Yeah, for the piano. Yes, which we reviewed. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, then lastly, uh, I just want to touch on Max von Sydow, uh, as Father Marin. He just carries such gravitas. He <laughs> he remind. <laughs> I don't know if this is racist or not. He carries such gravitas in his scenes and such like composure. It reminds me of he's a, like a white Morgan Freeman. That's not racist. <laughs> I don't think that's racist. <laughs> um, he's so steadfast in his belief. He's so great. He really, really only has like this one scene. Mm. Uh, besides the, you know, earlier on uh, the, the film, which uh, I had forgotten about the kind of prologue that uh, yeah. that goes on in the beginning. Yeah, in Iraq. Um, I wasn't sure how I felt about starting the movie back there. Yeah. Not the most necessary thing, but it looks great. Like the cinematography of those scenes is awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great, really great performance in mm-hmm. basically one scene. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy watching this, this 50 year old movie, seeing Max von Sydow in that role and then realizing he was also in uh rogue one yeah <laughs> like that's how long he was in film for because he already looks like an old man and this man he's playing an old man i'm well, sure he i'm sure he's in a lot of makeup he is yeah. he was only 44 oh, okay in this movie that makes sense but he's playing he's supposed to be playing somebody in their 70s right okay um those are all the performances i have yeah that's uh that's certainly it uh favorite performance uh i'm gonna go linda blair yeah linda blair yeah linda blair yeah 100 uh all right technical review uh, let's start with the directing. Uh, William Friedkin. Fresh off his win as best director for The French Connection, he is 
absolutely, like I mentioned earlier on, he's really he has a really great eye and a really great way of telling the story. Uh, it does have a slow pace to start, but he knows how to build up the tension. It's this really slow build that you can just feel coming because you know what the movie's supposed to be about. So that the prologue and then the slow build up to eventual the eventual possession, knowing that it's coming, I just sat there dreading the oncoming freight train that was about to come. Uh, he frames his shots so well. Mm-hmm. Like everything about this film just looks great. Uh, the way he moves the camera around uh, is impressive considering uh, the Steadicam hadn't been invented yet. Uh, That's true. It was just <laughs> uh, lots of close-ups. The man knows how to tell a story. Uh, he was – this was a, a, in, an incredible work of art. Yeah, and I mean in with this I will throw in uh, the cinematographer Owen Roisman. Yeah. Um, who actually did a movie that I just watched like a few weeks ago, The Addams Family. <laughs> oh, he shot um, that? Yeah, he shot that as well. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I thought the way this movie was shot was excellent. Um, we often talk about action scenes being in camera and yeah. being able to see all, all the stuff that the director is trying to trying to do is very important. And, yeah, obviously cinematographer and director work very closely on that sort of thing. Um but it's the same thing in a lot of these scenes where you know the bed is levitating or shaking or we get the head spinning around. Uh, one of the things that make this, makes this movie so timeless is that these, air quotes, these action scenes uh, are all in camera and we see all of it. That's not to say that this doesn't have that classic horror movie thing where it, you get violence suggested, where it's intentionally off screen, yep. where you just get something that's uh, suggested is happening. Um, and you let people imagine it, that's an intentional choice. But the things that we do see, um, like like I say, the head spinning around, the beds levitating, the practical effects that we're supposed to see, they're all very much in camera, relatively long shots. Um, I guess you can throw editing in there as well then. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the way that uh, all of all of those types of scenes are shot in this movie. That's a testament to both director and cinematographer mm-hmm. and a little bit editor. Well, since we're on cinematography, a couple shots I really love. Obviously, the iconic shot of Father Marin arriving. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a painting come to life. Yes. Like, that was beautiful. Yeah. That, that's been ripped off and homaged, you know, countless times in the intervening 50 years between then and now. Um, I feel like I've seen Spielberg use that shot before. Am I crazy? Uh, Spielberg loves – he loves a – Column of light, yeah, with a lot of fog, and potentially a silhouette. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Best cinematography was from a film I've never heard of called Cries and Whispers. Must be great looking. Okay, um, I already mentioned uh, the opening scenes in Iraq. Yeah, uh, also look uh, very great. The the planes, wide shots. Um, we see the sun very big in the sky. Uh, also looks beautiful. Uh, Anyone else you want to go to from here? Sound design, the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely incredible. Their use of sound design, the, the sounds of the, the screaming, the moaning, 
every once in a while there's an extremely loud sound that was thro- like throwing me off purposely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sound design uh, was great for me. The we actually can touch on that before I move on. Yeah, it, no, it, sound it, design uh, is, a, is a good one to touch on. The right off the bat. Uh, sound is playing a rather large role with uh, Ellen Burstyn hearing the quote-unquote rats yep. in the in the attic above her. So having solid sound design to set that um, set that scene right off the bat is very important. Uh, the bed rattling sounds so ominous, yep. and creepy. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great thing to touch on. Uh, well, I'll I'll quickly touch on the screenplay. Um, the screenplay written by the same person that wrote the novel. So. The we, we've already kind of touched on it, but the arc for Father Karras, the dialogue, how Chris is doing everything right, mm-hmm. which makes us empathize with her even more because she's not making a mistake. You're like, you're doing what you should be doing, and it's still failing. Uh, so the screenplay, uh, which won, uh, won? Did it, yeah, uh, and rightfully so. Um, Thoughts on the screenplay? Yeah, uh, excellent. Uh, the <laughs> the one thing from the screenplay maybe worth touching on is uh, the dialogue, as vile as it is. <laughs> uh, you know the numerous uh, things that this demon is saying through uh, the body of Linda Blair. Um, apparently, that was intensified on set. In, in the screenplay, it wasn't even as uh, disgusting as that. Yeah. Um, but a priest who they had come on to consult said that a demon would not be holding back even that much. They would be saying even worse, even more horrific things. Yeah. And they had to amp it up on set. And uh, amp it up, they did. Uh, so dialogue, very effective, not just in those scenes, but um, I think uh, I'm uh, through a number of the monologues in the movie, in particular Ellen Burstyn's, um, the dialogue is excellent, or the monologue is excellent in that particular case. Um, and then, yeah, the uh, the arcs of the characters, well-realized, uh, well-earned win. Yeah. Uh, costumes, hair and makeup. Uh, I was going to say Regan. Regan's cuts on her face. Uh, the gradual transformation into the demon. Uh still looks great yeah i like how they didn't just give her one look for like for uh possessed reagan and then just leave her they had her progress they had her um uh almost decompose a little bit uh in camera and it looks great every time also worth mentioning that uh, this category would include things like the blood, things like yep. the that gross green vomit, that pea soup <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that uh, that is so famous. Uh, those things would also be included in this category. Yeah. So, um, did you say it didn't even get nominated for this category? Is that right? Correct. That is a head scratcher. I mean, it gets nominated for ten categories and not this one. That's that's a strange one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's only best costume design. Wow. Well. Um. Okay. Yeah. I can't explain it. Um, the help me on her body. Uh, really great special effect. Don't know how they did that. In the scene where the words help me 
arise out of uh, Reagan's torso, the effect was achieved by constructing a foam latex replica of actress Linda Blair's belly, writing the words out with a paintbrush and cleaning fluid, then filming the words as they formed from the chemical reaction. Special effects artist Dick Smith then heated the forming blisters with a blow dryer, causing them to deflate. When the film was run backwards, it appears though the words were rising out of the young Reagan's skin in an attempt to summon intervention. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great effect. Um, and that, for me, lastly, the special effects. Yeah. The objects flying around the room, the cold room, which the special effect is they just made the room cold. Mm -hmm. It was like working in a fridge. Fuck that. Um, uh, Reagan's floating. Um, Reagan's cuts appearing on her. Spasms. The spasms. Everything practical. Yeah, the uh, cuts appearing as he flings the holy water is a great effect. Yeah. Um, and that sound design, that... Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, this film is just a, a, a technical masterpiece. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I have really anything else. Um, honestly, the score was creepy, but uh, not uh, not among my favorite things of the movie. Yeah. It was good, but uh, a lot of these scenes are allowed to play out silently. Mm -hmm. um, and by silently, I mean without music. Um, yep. But yeah, the score was fine, just less of a feature for this particular movie. All right. Your favorite technical aspect then? Typical cop-out answer. When everything's good, it's the director. I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, William Friedkin. All right. Favorite quotes. What do you got? Favorite quotes. All right. I got one, two, three, four, five. Me too. Uh, <laughs> Some of these are going to be fun to read. Uh, number one, your mother sucks, sucks cocks in hell, Karis, you faithless slime. Nice. Uh, number two is between Karis and the demon. Uh, if you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? And the demon responds, that's much too vulgar a display of power, Karis. Nice. I like that one in particular because I am a metal fan and one of the most famous metal albums of the 90s from Pantera called A Vulgar Display of Power. <laughs> they they stole that from, from that, obviously. Interesting. Um, Number three uh, is uh, Father Karras again. Uh, there are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as uh, you probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. And if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd know it's like saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and number four, the demon again. Your mother's in here, Karras. Would you like to leave a message? I'll see that she gets it fucking conniving yes. <laughs> evil uh and uh number five is the aforementioned monologue from ellen burston uh you show me reagan's double same face same voice everything and i'd know it wasn't reagan i'd know it in my gut and i'm telling you that thing upstairs isn't my daughter now i want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind you tell me for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good you tell me that Love it. Fantastic. Awesome. Cool. Uh, my favorite quotes, I got five as well. I got uh, Marin and Karis together. The power of Christ compels you. Yeah. <laughs> 14 times. 14 times. I'm not going to say it 14 times. Mm -hmm. uh, from our uh, our friend the demon. Your mother sucks cucks in hell, Karis, you faithless slime. Love it. Uh, another one from our good friend the demon. Uh, the demon is Pazuzu. Pazuzu, yes. yes. Uh, stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. Uh, I have something from Father Marin. Especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. 
He is a liar. The demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful, so don't listen to him. Remember that. Do not listen. And last one is from the demon. Let Jesus fuck you. Let Jesus fuck you. Let him fuck you. <laughs> oh, this movie is so crazy. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> your favorite quote. Uh, Ellen Burstyn's monologue, uh, the one about uh, you show me Reagan's yep. double, and I'm, uh, I know that thing upstairs is my daughter. That's a great line. It is a great line. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. <laughs> you faithless slime is my winner. That's great. Um, what was the weak link of the, fil- of the film? I don't think there is one. I'm with you. I had a l- I the only thing I had was a slow pace at the start, mm-hmm. but even then I like that it builds up. It just it, to me it just adds attention. Yeah, like if you twist my arm I I could definitely get on board with um not even the like not the first act, but like the first part of the first act. Yep. Um but it's it, it's tone setting. It's not really advancing the plot much, but it's setting the tone. Yeah. So I still like that it's in there. All right, shit done of trivia. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Here we go. Uh, the scene where Reagan projectile vomits at Father Karras only required one take. The vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, but the plastic tubing misfired, hitting him in the face. His reaction of shock and disgust while wiping away the vomit is genuine, and Miller admitted in an interview that he was very angered by this mistake. <laughs> Good one. Uh, the bedroom set had to be refrigerated to capture the authentic icy breath of the actors in the exercising scenes. Exercising? Exorcising. Exorcising. I mean, but like exercising, yeah. I yeah. think it's pronounced the same. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, Linda Blair, who was only in a flimsy nightgown, says to this day she cannot stand being cold. The refrigerated bedroom set was cooled with four air conditioners, and temperatures would plunge below 30 degrees, so that's freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so cold that the perspiration would freeze on some of the cast and crew. On one occasion, the air was saturated with moisture, resulting in a thin layer of snow falling on the set before the crew arrived. Whoa. That's hardcore. That's commitment to the role, man. Actress Mercedes uh, Mercedes McCambridge, who provided the voice of the demon, insisted on swallowing raw eggs and chain-smoking to alter her vocalizations. The actress, who had had problems with alcohol abuse in the past— Furthermore, wanted to drink whiskey as she knew alcohol would distort her voice even more and create the crazed state of mind of the character. As she was giving up so, uh, sobri- sobriety? sobriety, sobriety, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process. At William Freakin's di- direction, McCambridge was also bound to a chair with pieces of a torn sheet at her neck, arms, wrist, legs, and feet to get a more realistic sound of the demon struggling against its restraints. McCambridge later recalled the experience as one of horrific rage, while Friedkin admitted that her performance, as well as extremes which the actress put herself through to gain authenticity, terrifies the director to this day. This was probably the reason why Friedkin declined to call back McCambridge to provide the demon's voice for the film's TV version, instead deciding to do the voice himself. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I... I had heard there was some drama surrounding the voice actress, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Here we go. And there's more. Mercedes McCambridge had to sue Warner Brothers for credit as the voice of the demon. William Friedkin on the Diane Rimes show said that originally she didn't want a credit, saying that she wanted the audience to believe the voice was Reagan's. However, after it was released, she changed her mind and was given the credit. Hmm. 
Uh, Linda Blair received her Best Supporting Actress nomination before it was widely known that previous Supporting Actress winner Mercedes McCambridge had actually provided the voice of the demon. By Academy rules, once Blair was given the nomination, it could not be withdrawn. But the controversy about Blair being given credit for another actress's work ruined her chances of winning the award. Which is really too bad because, I mean, we established uh, between the two of us here, I, I have no problem with the nomination, even with that knowledge. Yep. Um, quite the opposite. I think it's well, well, well deserved. Uh, director Willem Friedkin uh, eventually asked technical advisor Thomas Birmingham to exercise the set. He refused saying an exorcism might increase anxiety. Reverend Birmingham wound up visiting the set and gave a blessing and talk to reassure the casting crew. Hmm. Ellen Burstyn received a permanent spinal injury during filming. In the sequence where she is thrown away from her possessed daughter, a harness jerked her hard away from the bed. She fell on her coccyx and screamed in pain. That's the take you see in, on the film. Man, it's always tough hearing stories like that where the take used in the film, the actor is in some sort of distress. I mean, if it works, it works. Yep. Uh, Ellen Burstyn wore a bracelet in the film with a horseshoe on it because she had the idea that she wanted her character, Chris McNeil, to be poorly armed to fight the devil. On the last day of filming, she gave the bracelet to Linda Blair. Several years later, they crossed paths on an airline flight to Los Angeles, and Linda was wearing the bracelet she had given her. Oh, that's so cute. <clears throat> in the arteriogram scene probably the, don't the medical procedure yeah, yeah in, with the neck the bearded man who assists the doctor is Paul Bateson he was an x-ray technician at NYU Medical Center where the scene was shot and managed to get that small part in 1979 six years after the film comes out he was convicted of the murder of a film critic and sentenced to 20 years in prison However, he bragged about and was a suspect in the murders of six men whom he said he picked up in gay bars, had sex with them, and then murdered and dismembered their bodies and put them into plastic bags for fun in 1977 and 1978. They were known as the bag murders. Although investigators believed his story, he was never officially charged, and those murders have technically never been solved. Bateson was released from prison in 2004, the whole story revolving the bag murders were later fictionalized in Cruising, 1980, which is also directed by William Friedkin. That's fucking unsettling. I did not know any of that. <laughs> oh, boy. The actual residence in Georgetown that is used for the exterior shots has a rather large yard between it and the infamous steps. The window that leads to Reagan's room is at least 40 feet from the top of the steps. This distance would make it impossible for anyone thrown from the window to actually land on the steps. In the movie, set decorators added a false wing to the house so that Reagan's supposed window would, in fact, be close to the infamous steps. Yeah, that makes more sense. One week after the film's uh, release to great success, the studio contacted director William Friedkin to propose a sequel. He simply replied with, hell no, and hung up the phone. Oh, he didn't uh, return to direct any of them? Or? No. Oh, wow. No. Uh, Jason Miller starred in the iconic horror film The Exorcist in the 70s. 15 years, his son, whose name is also Jason Miller, but is known by his stage name, Jason Patrick. There it is. Also starred in another vi uh, very iconic horror film of the era, Lost Boys. Which <laughs> <laughs> we talked about and All I right. did not like. Boo. Two stars. Shut your mouth hole. <laughs> Casting what ifs. You ready? Yep. Some good ones in here. Jack Nicholson was up for the part of Father Karras. 
Nice. Uh, the studio wanted Marlon Brando for the role of Father Marin. Uh, William Freakin immediately vetoed this by stating that with Brando in the film, it would become a Brando movie instead of the important film he wanted to make. Which I understand. I, I do get the decision, but like, is having a world-class actor really such a bad thing? I mean, Max once said I was good in the role. I think it would be in this film. It I, would be what? Bad. Oh, yeah? I do. Uh, Audrey Hepburn was William Friedkin's first choice to play the role of Chris McNeil, and Warner Brothers supported him because of her good critical and commercial reputation with the studio, but she only agreed to do it if the movie was filmed in Rome. So that was Audrey Hepburn, you said? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. She just moved to Italy, so she's like, I'll do it if you film all of it in Rome. And William's like, nope. See ya. <laughs> um, ba 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 Producers sought to have Jamie Lee Curtis audition for the role of Reagan, but her mother, Janet Lee, refused. Yeah. Too bad nothing ever came of that Jamie Lee Curtis because mm-hmm. she missed out on that role. According to Variety magazine, it was revealed that Carrie Fisher and her mother, Debbie Reynolds, were contenders for the role of Reagan and Chris McNeil. Oh. This one excited me. And after I said that, I realized that it was wrong of me to frame it in that way. <laughs> Uh, but Sharon Stone was considered for the role of Reagan McNeil. <laughs> yeah. Well, she would go on to have a, a perfectly cast role in Basic Instinct. Stanley Kubrick was considered by the studio to direct the picture. He later noted that he was very impressed by the film. Yep. And under his direction, it would have been great, and the production would have been even more of a disaster. This was originally scheduled for 84 days of filming. Took 244. Yikes. Uh, according to William Peter Blatty, director William Freakin also considered Gene Hackman for the role of Father Karras. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to William Freakin, Paul Newman wanted to portray Father Karras. I don't know. Gene Hackman in particular, I think, I find too harsh for this role. Like... I do have admittedly little or admittedly limited experience with Gene Hackman, but the roles that I do see him in where I enjoy him are ones where he's um, brash or rough. I'm thinking uh, Crimson Tide. I'm thinking Birdcage. Um, You know, he plays a man's man very well. Mm -hmm. I don't really get that with Karras. He's more sensitive and vulnerable than that. That's fair. Last one. Al Pacino was considered for Father Karras. Hoo-ah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, except this is way before. Who it's way was. before that. This is like, this is Michael Corleone. Yeah, he would have been excellent. This would have been unreal. That That's actually, more I think about it, that's really good casting. Yeah. Uh, all right, closing credits. Would you watch this movie again? Yes, I would. Same here. Would you recommend this movie to friends? Yes, I would. Hells yeah. MVP of the film? Um, Gosh, I'm going to go Friedkin. Yeah, I'm with you there. He's... His fingerprints are all over this. When a movie is this well-made from top to bottom, it's really hard to not give credit to the person that basically made the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recommend a good double feature with this film. Oh, gosh. I didn't answer this question. Um, That is a tough one. Uh, What do you have for this? (sighs) Okay. I I had two. I had two in mind. The thing is, is I've never seen them. Mm. But they're along the same lines. 
So the two I'm going to recommend, I'm going to mention here, but then I'm going to go with my actual recommendation. Okay. So basically the Omened and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary's Baby is uh, kind of what I was thinking. Um, just, I haven't seen them. so. Yeah, me neither. But in conversations I've had with people, um, in particular one of my coworkers who's old enough to remember this movie coming out, um, he told me that, uh, yeah, Rosemary's Baby basically was this movie before this movie came out. This one arguably did it better, um, but uh, Rosemary's Baby achieved a lot of the same things, just to a lesser degree. So my pick... I was trying to think of something along these lines that would be as creepy. So I I went with Paranormal Activity. Yeah, which, I mean, is, is certainly fine. Similar subject matter. Uh, it's not nearly the the film no. that this is. It had a similar, similarly widespread influence, not to the degree of The Exorcist, but uh, in terms of ratio of budget to earnings, it had a rather large effect. But yeah, I think that's fine. Honestly, I'm scrolling through horror movies right now, trying to just what what I'm really trying to find for a recommendation is something that came out before this. Rosemary's Baby is a good one, but really, I want to find something that exemplifies what horror was before this. Oh, just, Nosferatu. Yeah, Nosferatu. <laughs> <laughs> like 50 years prior. Um, I don't know. I think something like something like The Birds would be would be good with this. Again, I haven't actually seen The Birds, but. Something with a little bit of a, a silly horror concept that might come off as a little bit campy. Again, that might not be the perfect example of it, but something like that where you can see the juxtaposition of what horror was mm -hmm. and what it became All after right. this movie. Uh, what will be this film's legacy? Uh, well, I mean, we talked about it already. It's widely regarded as the greatest horror film ever made. Yeah. Scariest movie of all time. Yep. Yep. Both of those are good answers. Did you learn anything from this movie? Um child acting safety practices were a lot more lax back in the day <laughs> uh this was for me uh not to fuck with demons in possession don't fuck with demons in possession yeah uh sam your final thoughts on the exorcist i'm really glad this held up uh th this movie has held up exceptionally well uh for having been released 50 years ago it is arguably as scary um Certainly, it advances in technology and in film have rendered this film a little less scary in retrospect, but it hasn't rendered it uh, less amazing uh, at just what it achieved. Um, this film is, by a lot of measures, a masterpiece in its creation. Uh, we talked about the the director just really hitting all the boxes, getting amazing performances out of his cast, um, having well shot well thought out special effects which serve the story it's not just you know patting himself on the back for look what i can do look what i can put on camera it's all serving the story serving the tone um serving that horrible feeling that you get knowing that this is all happening to a child it's well cast and it's just overall top to bottom fucking scary and creepy and awesome and i'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to do this and i'm glad the people voted for us to watch this movie and they they got it right this time uh, they they haven't always in these <laughs> in these hor halloween horror episodes but damned if they ever got it right this time they would have got it right last week if we just hadn't decided to get that over with mm -hmm. halloween town would never last year i think you mean yeah what did i say last, last night last week oh yeah okay last yeah. year yeah it's late yeah. uh 
I was super excited they picked this movie. I was not looking forward to rewatching it, but thankfully, uh, watching it with a critical eye allowed me to relax. And then I also realized, this being my second watch, I wasn't as creeped out and scared. This movie is so fucking well made. Uh, it was it it honestly blew my mind at how well made this movie was. All ten of its Oscar nominations are well earned. To the point where we actually feel it should have gotten an 11th nomination for costume and makeup. It was incredibly well acted. It's so well constructed as a film. Again, I think this is like my third or fourth time saying it on this episode, but I want to say it. I, I wish I could have been in the theater when this came out. It would have been amazing to see everyone's reactions to this film. Because like you said, this blows up all other horror films that came out before it out of the water. Um, and obviously it was a massive success um, judging by the, uh, by the ticket sales. This movie is spectacular. Well put Sam time to give this movie a rating. What are you giving the exorcist? I, I really don't know. Um, it's uh it's a technical masterpiece, but I think I would be a little bit disingenuous to give it a five. I don't enjoy it on that level of like just pure love for this movie. I think it's a pretty solid four. Uh, it's not the type of movie that I'm really inclined to, something that's really disgusting and makes you unsettled all the time, but it's super effective at what it does. An argument could be made for giving it a five, but I, I just simply don't enjoy it that much. It's a really good, really enjoyable movie that I will revisit. It's a four. Literally just stole every thought out of my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's a four for me. Same thing. It Basically, the only reason it's not getting a five is rewatchability. Mm -hmm. It's not a movie that I'm going to ever – I'll be honest. I will watch this movie again, but not by my choice. Yeah. I will never be like, I think I'm going to pull on The Exorcist. It's just not my cup of tea, but I. But it's just so exceptionally it's made. <laughs> so fucking good. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's an easy four for me. Um, I probably I yeah who knows I probably be could be convinced to give it a five, but it's the rewatchability that's keeping it from a five for me. Mm. Sam, what's going on next week? Next week. From one annual episode to another, uh, we're going to be doing our annual Remembrance Day movie. We do a war movie every year. This week, Dunkirk made the cut. Dunkirk. Really excited for this. Me too. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, I think this will be my third watch. Same. I remember being a little bit underwhelmed given the critical consensus on the movie yeah people critics fucking loved dunkirk i for nolan i thought it was a solid effort but not one of his best um so i'm curious to revisit me too all right so please remember to rate review and subscribe to us on itunes if you give us a five-star rating and a positive review does increase the profile of our podcast allows more people to find us which we greatly appreciate you can also find us on spotify where you can give us a rating there which we would love as well you can email us at sammanymoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us on Twitter and Instagram. I was about to say Facebook. At Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manny Movie Podcast. We really and truly appreciate every single one of you for listening. We love you all. 
for the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm Manny Manuel. The power of Christ compels you. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios.